Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students can prepare for college success, experience college life, and make new friends from around the world. More than 300 courses are available. Precollege.brown.edu. I'm Jim Browdy, ahead live on Boston Public Radio with a few days to reflect. And because it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're opening the show with you getting your thoughts on the new monument in Boston Commons celebrating Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King and the unsung local heroes of the civil rights movement. Will it help move Boston forward? Where are we in 2023 on race relations and equality? I'm Marjorie Egan. Joining us virtually from the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Breakfast is Michael Curry from the NAACP and the Mass League of Community Health Centers. We'll get his thoughts on this moment, plus what Supreme Court rollbacks to affirmative action could mean for equity in this country. It's all to come on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GPH. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. We should say we're live, don't you think? I mean, we yes, are live. Yes, we are live. We are live. Yes, we are live. And we're Absolutely. live again tomorrow at the Boston Public yep. Library. Hope you join us. You know, in April of 65, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led a march of more than 20,000 people from Roxbury to Boston Common to protest the state of poverty and inequality in local communities of color. He referred to the city as one of the places he called home but added, quote, Boston must be a testing ground for the ideal of freedom. So as we broadcast today on the national holiday in his honor, we're opening the phone and text lines at 877-301-8970 to ask if Boston has lived up to the mission Dr. King laid down all those years ago. We're also a few days removed from the unveiling of this incredible statue, the Embrace. We broadcast live, as you know, from the ceremony on Friday. We didn't get a chance to hear your opinions about statue, the ceremony, the effort of public officials and private donors to properly honor Martin and Coretta Scott King's legacy here, a two-story tall bronze monument to their love and dedication to the pursuit of equality now sits firmly in the heart of the oldest public park in the country. Have you seen the statue? Do you plan to visit? What do you take away from the whole process? How's it look to you? Also, what type of engagement would you like to see the city, local nonprofits, museums do to keep King's message alive? Obviously, there's going to be the Embrace Center in Nubian Square so that this statue isn't seen as a one-off attempt to try to combat the narrative that Boston has been an unwelcoming and racist city. The number is 877-301-8970. I don't know if I appreciated it enough as we were doing it, Marjorie. But Friday was one of the shows we've done them for a quarter of a century that I will never forget. The visual, the the conversations with those who were kind enough to join us, it was unbelievable. It it was a great day, but just let me get something out of the way because I opened up the text messages and we uh, were rather pummeled by people that were upset because they went to Boston Common on Friday and they couldn't get in. Um, And we led the people to believe, frankly, I didn't realize that you had to have some Nor kind of I. ticket to get we in there. We should have, so actually. We should have, and that's our yeah. fault. So I'm very, very sorry about that. The people went down there and were stuck outside of a fence on, on Tremont Street trying to see the statue. By the but way, he- there was a place, I, I don't want to get into this, but since you brought it up, there was a place uh, on the other side of Tremont 
where uh, there were monitors, there was hot chocolate, there were donuts and things, but I, people weren't clear about it, and we didn't help. And so in any case, Marjorie's right. We apologize. I'm sorry. But but but, but um, other than that, <laughs> other than a little bit of mud, it was a, a great day. I mean, we said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, we haven't had a statue like this in Boston. There's a It's a rare statue that commemorates Coretta King and what she was involved yeah. in uh, in bringing her husband's uh, dream to pursuit after he was assassinated when he was such a young man. And it's the first statue that we've had on Boston Common. That is anything that people emailed about the statue of the um, on the State House about the uh, black infantry and honoring mm-hmm. the, the, the those soldiers there, but that's the State House. This is this is Boston Common. It's one of the biggest tourist spots in Boston, and it's great that we have this statue there. So we want to know a bunch of things. What do you, if you've seen it? I'm sure you've at least seen video of it or photographs. What do you think? Uh, two, uh, I think, by the way, the people, even those involved in now what's called Embrace Boston would suggest the statue in and of itself, while symbols matter, it's not enough. And that's why they're so dedicated to the building of this Embrace Center, as I said, Nubian Square, which sounds like it'll be spectacular. And uh, uh, thirdly, where are we in this, particularly in this city, in terms of uh, race relations in 2023? And as I said, do you think this is going to help? give a little jump start or at least a jump continuation. We'll speak to Michael Curry, who used to be head of the NAACP in Boston, now on the International Board in about 20 minutes. Uh, what do you think the impact of this is going to be? 877-301-897. I have to say the statue itself, uh, some of, I've been reading some criticism that, you know, white people have, uh, you see their whole bodies here, you only see their arms, their hands. I think this totally out of the ordinary portrayal by Hank Willis uh, Thomas, the sculptor, is brilliant and causes it to stand apart. And when you realize what the inspiration was, this photograph from 1964, right after the Kings had heard that uh, Martin had won the Nobel Peace Prize, it, uh, I think it but is perfect. But you know perfect. something? Th- this is very typical of art. People have to weigh in and say they don't like it, they don't get it, they don't, whatever. I mean, I, if you've been down to Washington, D.C., um, you've seen a, a lot of the memorials to different wars, this, the grand ones to World War II. You see the ones in Korea. You see a lot of men in their uniforms mm-hmm. as, as soldiers in Korea. And then you see the Vietnam <laughs> Memorial with the names of everybody who died. I mean, to me... And it was very controversial. A lot of Vietnam Huge. veterans hated it, absolutely hated it. But to me, there's nothing more moving than that that black piece of marble coming out of the ground, mm-hmm. is forming a big triangle, going back in with the names. It, it out it strips the other statue memorials of their impact, I think, because it's just so much more dramatic. And I kind of feel that way about this. I mean, a statue of him, a statue of her okay, that's what we do, that's what we've done historically. This, to me, is is just, is people who've said that have gone inside it, you can go inside it and look up at the sky through the middle. And as uh, the Reverend Jeffrey Brown said when he was on with us, you, you see the buttons on Martin Luther King's jacket. You see the ring on his finger. You see the clutch of pearls Greta Scott King had on her wrist. So I just, to me, and I'm not an art historian, obviously. I thought you were. No, I'm not. But it really, I did take art history in school, though, Jim. Your favorite course, I know. My favorite course. I took several art history okay, courses. Fine. They're sorry, always controversial. Okay. I really think this is a great statue. So do I. And by the way, uh, Brian from Paxton says, astonishing the negative comments online regarding King's sculpture. 
from MAGA supporters, which probably, <laughs> but you're entitled to your view. I, I think what it represents, plus I am with Marjorie, I think it is just beautiful and stays with you. And, you know, one of the things that was said to us, I, I think it was by the sculptor, I think it was Hank Willis Thomas who said this, correct me if I'm wrong, Marjorie, on Friday, that everybody we asked about it, including the three co-founders of Embrace Boston, Reverend Brown, Reverend Walker, and Paul English, none of the three of them knew, is if you stand down on Tremont, there's a little cement like yes. rectangle. The cement <laughs> rectangle mortified. is the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. And if you look at and read the Declaration of Independence on that cement con- construct or whatever it is, right behind it you have this this uh, depiction of the kings. It is, talk about perfect. I don't know if that was intended by anybody. I assume that was coincidence because if the co-founders of the damn organization didn't know about it, I assume nobody else did either. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. Give us a buzz or a text. 877-301-8970 is the number. You know what else about this statue? Um, This corresponds, I mean, I said this, uh, you know, I've said this for years. I've been around Boston for a long time as a reporter and there were whole sections of Boston that if you were black, you didn't go into South Boston, Charlestown being the two that were so mm-hmm. uh, that you just didn't go. And I, I, and there were this ca- town was basically run by uh, Irish Catholics. I always joke how the uh, Suffolk, uh, the detectives in Suffolk County, it was O'Dwyer, O'Sullivan, O'Neill. You know, it was, it was like it was like an Irish, you know, St. Patrick's Day, 20, uh, 24 hours a day. We're we're much different from that now. We had a laughing stock as a city council then. We had a laughing stock as a as a school community then. This is part of coincides with the progress Boston has made. I mean, South Boston is still predominantly white, uh, but the, the pro- housing projects weren't even integrated then. You know, it was a big deal, a big stink when when Ray Flynn wanted to integrate housing projects. So Flynn was is, there, by the way. Flynn is a forgotten man there. in a lot of ways. Right. I'm a huge admirer of uh, Mayor Flynn, but, but he was this, announced from the stage. But yeah. doesn't this coincide with the change in our in our in our politics? We have women mostly running the state now. We have a woman of color the first. The Attorney General, Ayanna Presley, Congressman. Boston is not what it was. Boston was kind of a dump, let's face it, uh, uh, you know, f- uh, 40 years ago, and it's not a dump anymore. Well, you know, I agree with that. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm sure I'm going to mention this in every segment today because it had a huge impact on me. Is when, for one of the rare moments when I was actually not talking on our show, and I'm looking at you speaking to three guests who were lined up right That's in a right. row. Mayor Wu, Maura Healy, and Andrea Campbell. Talk about a change coming to Greater Boston. You know, the backdrop for this, though, is a little troubling, uh, I should say the least, even against weight against your positive comments a minute ago. We have a Republican Party that is dominated by a, I mean, a, a racist, essentially, the former president of the United, uh, United States, Donald Trump. We have a Supreme Court, we should discuss this with Michael Curry in a few minutes, that appears poised come June when it issues its decisions to eliminate affirmative action as a permissible as a, a, an issue uh, when deciding college admissions. So while I took a lot of positive things out of Friday and a lot of positive things out of the messages that were shared with us, uh, there's a lot of bad stuff going, that's going on oh, that is God. not only yeah. slowing progress, but it's arguably 
turning things uh, well, backwards. Listen, we have a long way to go, and I think the, bo- the backlash from Barack Obama uh, is alive and I well, agree. continuing all across the country. Anyway, our number is 877-301-8970. You can call us or text us at that number. Have you seen, if you didn't actually get down to Boston Common to see the statue, you've certainly seen it on TV. You've certainly seen it in the, in the papers. It's been all over the place. What do you think? Do you think it matters? It is a symbol, um, but it is a symbol of... Obviously, an embrace is 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 a symbol of, of love and carrying on and holding on. What do you think? Gigi from Cambridge, you are first this hour oh, on the, uh, G- uh, not Jim and Marjorie show, it is Boston Public Radio. That was about 20 years ago. Yeah, but was. whatever it is, Going you're on that was... show, whatever it's called. Hi, Gigi. Hi, Gigi. Hi, dear. I, I, I listen to you every single day. Great. Uh, thank I, you. You're a wise woman, Gigi. I hate it when I have to miss an hour or so. You're a sweet person. But I wanted to comment on Marjorie's experience when she goes to Washington. I lived in Washington for a couple of years, so I go back. And my son, my elder son now, um, lives just outside. Uh, But every time I go, and we always go to the Vietnam Memorial, and I cry. I can't look at it. I can't remember and not cry. And my 64-year-old son is the same way. So it's it's very, very moving. And I remember when Myelin, you know, designed it and it was built, there was so much criticism of it. What? But yeah. there's something in, I guess, some of us, if not most of us, that it just reaches our... Our souls. Well, I, that is the Gigi, line. Thank you, thank you, Gigi, for the call. That, that's a listening. great call, and I think that's that's a great point. It's much more is much more moving. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to go to Normandy um, once, and people Me have too. gone there know that there's this very grandiose entrance to Normandy. It's the same thing. It's you know these high you know pillars and an archway and all that kind of stuff. That's what moves you at Normandy is the rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of 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 graves, you know, the the Christian mm-hmm. uh, graves, you know, the, with the crosses, the Muslim graves, hammer and sickle, the Jewish graves with the Star of David. I mean, it, it's just rows and rows, and you think these were these were 18-year-old men, 20-year-old men, 18-year-old men, and then that's juxtaposed with the ocean. You're right on the ocean there, and it's so beautiful. So you know, I'm, I'm with Gigi on the uh, Vietnam Memorial. You know, we have a, a bunch of, I was unaware of any of this, until Paul from Braintree is the first of a number who are saying virtually the same thing, so I assume it's true. Regarding the media and coverage of the un, uh, uh, unveiling of the embrace, it was my observation, with the exception of GBH radio coverage and that of Channel 10, NBC 10, both and the other local stations, 457, gave very limited coverage. They gave more coverage on site to, in Cohasset to the Anna Walsh case. And, and this was such a major moment. If that's true for Boston, shame on them, uh, uh, especially in the middle of the day when... I don't think people are quite in commercial broadcasting as worried about uh, uh, about ratings. But if that's true, that is a sad state of affairs. You know, before we take a break, Marjorie, we do have to take a break at 877-301-8970. I think the consensus uh, star guest on our radio show and star speaker from the stage oh my gosh. was yeah. the only granddaughter of Martin <clears throat> Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. Here is Yolanda Renee King, all of 14 years old speaking at Friday's unveiling of the embrace. 
I am very proud to be their granddaughter, but I am also challenged by their inspiring legacies of vision and courage and hope and healing. But I know that I am not alone. There is a sense in which we are all children and grandchildren of Martin and Coretta Scott King. She was unbelievable. And by the way, we played, we played <laughs> when we introduced her with her parents, we played sound from her at the ripe old age of 10. Yeah. Speaking at a March for Our Lives rally, obviously, the, you know, around organized by the Parkland kids who have done brilliant work. And she was pretty amazing at 10, too, I should say. There's a future there. You know who was great <laughs> with her, too, by the way? After the uh, Martin Luther King III and his wife, Andrea, and uh, Yolanda left the stage, our uh, uh, friend, uh, LaToya uh, Edwards, called her back on, not the whole family, <laughs> just uh, Yolanda back onto the stage and said yeah. something like, what is up with yeah, you, Yeah, what kid? are you doing there, girl? And, and, and the <laughs> and then, kid was great. Did you hear Ayanna Presley's line? Yeah. She said something like, I'm paraphrasing, she's she the congressman, of course. She said, she said uh, I think this little girl's coming after my job. Although maybe on the other hand, she'll skip Congress altogether right and go to straight the to the White House. So it was a pretty good line spontaneously delivered by uh, uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Anyway, we're talking about this until the, uh, for the next few minutes. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, what do you think about the coverage of the embrace? You've seen it on television, you've seen it in the newspapers. If you've actually been down there to Boston Common, let us know what you think and whether it will make any difference in uh, rehabilitating our largely uh, well-earned reputation as a racist city, 877-301-8970 is the number at which you can text us or call us. You're listening to Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mardrigan and Jim Browdy. Uh, lines are open to hear your thoughts on MLK Day today, the new sculpture in downtown. I'm calling it a statue, and people are trashing me. It's not. It's a sculpture. My apologies. In downtown Boston, the embrace. What's the significance for a city that's got a lot of, had a lot of problems with racism, namely Boston? And where are we in terms of what uh, King envisioned or hoped for in America in 2023? The number is eight seven seven three zero one. Eighty-nine seventy. You know, I have to correct myself and thank the say? texter. <laughs> Muslim graves do not have the symbol of the Soviet Union on them. Oh, what would you say? I said the hammer and sickle. Oh, I meant to say the crescent. So thanks to that texter. That was a that was a big blunder. Sorry about that. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. I'm sorry. Take it away. Brendan from Worcester. Thank you for calling. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I think I think the statue is beautiful. I love everything it represents. Um, and certainly the sort of, you know, reminding everybody that Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King started their journey together in Boston. But if you'll recall, um, one of the best lines in Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech was that America has given black folks a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient mm-hmm. funds. And I hate to say that in Boston, that check is still coming back insufficient funds. Uh, it's still one of the most segregated cities 
in America, the median net value of a black family in Boston is $8, according to the Boston Globe a number of years ago. The Federal Reserve. So that came from the Federal that, Reserve, for whatever that's worth. But, yeah, it was in the Globe. Yep. The Federal Reserve. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot more work to do, and I hope, as you know, as beautiful as this statue is, and I just want to thank you both for having such great coverage of it on Friday as well. I was able to tune in. I hope it reminds folks of that and how much more work we have to do here in Boston and across the country. Well, you know, Brendan, I agree with most of what you said. Uh, the one exception I take is uh, when I mentioned before the imprint on my brain of having Wu standing next to Healy, standing next to Campbell. Uh, uh, that's like a revolution in a community that was led everywhere by white men uh, in the city, in the state. Uh, there's, it's, it, dramatic change is happening in high places, and I have actually a decent amount of hope, and I'm not generally a very hopeful guy, that uh, change is coming from uh, people who've demanded it. So let's keep our ears open a bit. Brendan, thanks for a great call. As always, we appreciate it. Yeah, Brent, we just got a text from a, a, a someone who identifies themselves as a person of color who says um, – He's not or she is not really convinced there's been much progress in a city that this person still considers most racist in the country. Um, I'm not sure if there will be change and progress in realistically happen within this person's lifetime or this person says before I move from Boston. Well, you know, by the way, Brendan just mentioned uh, being a segregated city. I've lived in Philadelphia, New York and here, and I've probably traveled to virtually every major American city, particularly those that have majority uh, minority populations. And I think that's an accurate description. We are, for the most part, a segregated city. As sure as hell was not a segregated audience on Friday at the unveiling of the embrace. But I think his point is sadly true. You know, in terms of people, I don't know if this is true, but you're a bit of an art scholar. Here's Gary from the Cape. Yes, you are. People forget the Parisians hated the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yes, yes, Is that yes. true? I, well, I now saw it's that. Revered. Let me just finish this thing. Now it's revered. If anyone dislikes Embrace, they'll be in the minority. In a few years, Embrace will be revered. Oh, you do or you don't know about the history? I don't know about the well, Eiffel Tower either. being hated. But it would make sense. I mean, I, I think, well, because this always happens, doesn't it? What was the piece of artwork that went up that was a little bit different that people didn't go crazy over? I mean, remember, Oh, like know, outside the, the Louvre. What's that thing called that What's-His-Face did? The uh, you know, little glass pyramid thing. Oh, yeah. Pyramid that That's everybody right. hate, too. Well, you know, it was another uh, a, a great example that lots of We really of know a lot like. about art, Marjorie and Ike, you can tell. But <laughs> we don't. Was... Um, uh, in the Commonwealth Avenue Mall, the Vendôme uh, Memorial yeah. to the firefighters. I think that's one of the most it's beautiful just things in the city. And, and a jackets, cape. Had right? a cape, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's no. There's no firefighters fu- had a cape. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah. And and somehow, when you see the real thing of the soldier running into, well, Iwo Jima is probably different. That's a very moving statue. If you see the Marines picking up, was it Marines that picked up the the flag near so. Jima during World War II? I believe so, but I'm not sure. Someone can correct us if we're wrong. But but that's a pretty moving one. But the, I think the Von Dome. If people haven't seen that, that is a great. Um, it's fabulous. Fabulous memorial so, to the firefighters who lost their lives. In if that you have fire. any questions at all about art history, our number is 877 301 8970. GL, you're in Roxbury on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hey. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, I am GL Matthews. Hey, GL. I'm freshly back here in Boston. I was raised here, but I was born in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not impressed at all. I don't see any business here. You know, before I left here, I founded the, uh, the African-American Project for Human Development. 
And of course, African Americans didn't like it because they didn't think that African Americans needed human development. So one of my board members said to me, go down to Birmingham, Alabama. They'll be more receptive. I did that. But I'm back here now. Well, they were more receptive, uh, but they didn't respond anymore. Okay, I'm back here, and I'm sorry to say, if people are looking for what they can do to make things better in Roxbury, we need industry. And that industry has been available ever since um, our Cool Jackson, who was president of the uh, Greater Roxbury Workers Association, he came on to my board of directors when I started here, and he talked about the, uh, the lack of contracts. You know, contracts. GL, uh, you may uh, know that uh, GBH, our colleagues, have done some brilliant reporting, unfortunately confirming exactly what you're saying about state and city contracts to people of color. That's the bad Mm -hmm. news. The good news, and I hope it leads to something, I know that during your campaign for mayor, Mayor Wu with us and others spoke a lot about attempting to fix that. I know that Governor Healy did the same. So your your sense of history is, I mean, I'm you don't need me to say it, uh, well, is know, spot on. But my hope is the future, uh, those issues are going to be addressed rather than just always, commented on. always the future. And I know, you're right. Wait. And you see, I was here in the 70s after meeting with Dr. King in Cleveland. And we met with Dr. King in Cleveland because black nationalists in Cleveland were talking about taking over the city of Cleveland. I was impressed with what uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson said in that meeting. And he basically asked, he said, well, if you take over the city of Cleveland, who in your group knows how to run the electrical uh, systems of the city? Then he asked, who knows how to run the water system of the city? Um, We had a brother there, very young people. I was in my, what was I? I was in my 20s. I'm an old man now. In fact, I'm looking for the brakes on this thing because if I don't slow down here, I'm going to be 80. <laughs> Keep at it, GL. Yeah. yeah. Hey, GL, so can you do us a – I'm sorry, go ahead. Is, those are the kinds of things that will make a <clears throat> that will make a difference. GL, can you uh, stay on hold, give uh, your number to one of our producers? We might like to talk to you down the line, and we thank sure, you for your sure. call and your thoughts today. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. But, you know, it's not it's not hopeless that we have discovered the scams in these supposed uh, contracts going to minority firms and women-owned firms. The scams have been exposed. I think for, for many years we didn't realize it was just a front, right, until good reporters brought that out. And I think it's a little bit harder to do it now that people are aware of the – of the dishonesty of that contract. But, but GL is basically saying, and you can't disagree with it, there's a lot of talking, and the question is when does the walk-in occur? And I do have confidence, actually, under Healy and Wu, that there's going to be a, a change. The numbers are painful. It's not just black people. It's uh, Latino uh, uh, small business people, Asian uh, small business people doing a little well, bit better, but not spectacularly well. But, you, but again, how long has – I mean – Black people have known this forever because they've been living it. But how long is, is the white power structure acknowledged, <clears throat> as King said in, one, in many of his speeches, that you can't pull yourself up on the bootstraps if you don't have any straps to pull yourself yeah. up on? And the way that, that you know, that, at, that the GI Bill did not go to black soldiers who came back from the war and the and the and um, all the 
property that was not available to black Americans because they couldn't get mortgages. All these things, I think, are re- – and even the fact that it's $8 versus, what is it, $250,000? $250, when yeah. did we find this out? Five years ago? I mean, I mean, yeah. we have been very slow, as, yeah. as G.I. says, on the uptake. GL. But, uh, Jill, I thought it was G.I. GL. I thought it was G.L. Uh, Jill. It <laughs> whatever. Well, whoever. GL the, the, the is The point name. is, I think this has been not known by a lot of white people. I mean, shame on us, but it hasn't been known. For well, God maybe, sakes, the hard we number, always... maybe the hard numbers are not known. It's hard to ignore it if you just look around you. So I think most of us knew it. It was convenient for most of but us I to ignore it. But I think there was a racist assumption that, well, you know, go get a job. Well, listen to a lot of kings talking, like I did this weekend, speaking about what you're talking about. The centerpiece of a lot of what he said was about economic injustice and reparations, even if not called that, were front and center in terms of what he was talking about. Pally from Somerville, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I do have an art history question for you. Oh, but don't. I'm, Please we, don't. We won't be able to answer it, Pauli. <laughs> I can audience. almost guarantee it. Go ahead. <laughs> I was in the audience on the outside, um, right behind the stage. So everybody was silhouetted. And it mm. was absolutely beautiful, and you could hear everything. Mm. And a big shout-out to whoever the singer was from Roxbury. Oh, my it God. Was, he was absolutely extraordinary. We'll, we'll get that name in a second. Name. Unbelievable. 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 Yeah, so it yeah. wasn't terrible and outside the, the fence? Because we kept looking at people outside the fence feeling very guilty. wasn't awful? No. I mean, I'm sure it was better inside. But, no, I wandered around the whole place. And yeah. you could really – you could hear a lot. And okay. it was – and you could see the sculpture. The wind had blown off the yeah. – um, so what do you think of the whole day, um, Polly? Uh, Polly. Um, Polly, I'm sorry. I, no, no problem. Um, I thought it was fabulous. I thought it was great. I was really glad I went down. But my question for you, and by the oh, way, the geez. Louvre Pyramid is was by I.M. Pei, the architect. Thank you. Thank um, you. Is uh, why do you suppose the artist did choose to take the heads off? I mean, I think what Yolanda said about it representing love um, was a good one. But have you heard anything about what, what the reasoning behind that was? Well, not only do I not know our history, we asked him something about that when he was with us on uh, Friday. Well, I got an idea. Oh, go ahead. Paul, you're the art historian. I'm not. But to me, it, it, it's just not Martin Luther King and Coretta King with their arms around each other. It's supposed to be all of us, right? I, I thought that was why. It's a universal embrace. It's not just them. It's to be the rest of us. How about it, Polly? That's lovely. That's beautiful. <laughs> what, what did he say when you asked him? Well, I'm glad Marjorie rescued me because I frankly, I can't remember. I can't remember what I had for breakfast, Polly, <laughs> much less what he said on Friday. Other than his comment, I want to repeat it again. He was the one who said to us that if you stand on Tremont Street, right there behind uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, sculpture is the Declaration of Independence on a piece of cement. And if you look right over the top of that piece of cement, you see the embrace. It was a beautiful image, and he apparently is the only one that knew it. Polly, thank you for a great call, and we're glad you enjoyed uh, Friday. We really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, coming up, we are going to talk with League of Community Health Centers and CEO of the NAACP. Oh, I think he's, he's the actually board of directors. The, the, it, yeah, the board is. of directors. I don't think he's a CEO. Well, CEO not yet, yet but anyway. Of course, he should be he in should any be, moment. Yes. Okay. But he's on the board of directors of the National We don't uh, have NAACP. a vote, but if we did... Yeah, Michael Curry. He's next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. We're at the library tomorrow. We hope you join us. Joining us now, I think, uh, taking a break from the Martin Luther King Day breakfast in Boston, on Zoom is Michael Curry. Michael is the president and CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. He's also sadly not the CEO of the NAACP <laughs> yet, but you never know. He's a member of the National NAACP's Board of Directors, where he chairs the board's Advocacy and Policy Committee. Happy Martin Luther King Day, Michael. It's good to see you. Happy MLK Day to both of you as well. Yeah. Uh, and Amandi. Amandi is the Roxbury singer that you heard at the unveiling. Oh, there's the answer to the prior palette. Polly, I think, yes. That was unbelievable. So, Michael, um, you were there. Of course, we spoke with you at the Embrace unveiling on Friday, but you're also at the Martin Luther King breakfast. So I'm wondering what the, the buzz is, you know, this morning about the whole event, including the sculpture. We're, most people love it, but some people, as always, are complaining. So what's the yeah. buzz there? Well, the buzz is a few things. So one is I, I feel full, of course, at a breakfast, but not full from the food, from the eggs and the sausages. I feel I feel full from the messages, from Dr. King's words, from the awardees that we're uh, recognizing today. I think the word here is a, a few things. So one is uh, people are going to celebrate as in a few minutes they will be awarding uh, Omari Paris Jeffries, uh, one of their uh, uh, honors here at the, the dinner the breakfast, I should say, for uh, the work that he's done, particularly around uh, the Embrace Boston Memorial, uh, as well as other Sheena Kalia for Boston Wild Black. I think people are excited about it. I think when you had the conversation around what does it symbolize, the Embrace, uh, Marjorie, I thought was an excellent explanation, right? It's not just about King and Coretta, it's about us. It's about, if you've seen any of the personal pictures of people from the from the memorial, from the monument, they're hugging each other yeah. in the same way the two of them hugged each other. Oh, that's great. And that's about oh, Boston. Man. And it's natural. Like, people brace each other right next to the memorial. And I think that's what the messaging is. So it, it, we know Dr. King. We know Coretta. We know their faces. Hopefully more people know their stories. Um, but this is about uh, forging a new path for Boston. Last but not least, Mara Healy, historic. Uh, Andrea Campbell, Andrea Campbell, historic. Um, uh, there's a lot of great things happening in Massachusetts right now. So we also want to celebrate that here at The Breakfast. Okay, so I'll say it for the third time in two segments today. Standing in line, talking to Marjorie, Wu, Healy, Andrea Campbell in our studio on The Common. I was in awe of just the image of how this community has changed. You know, one of the things that's not getting as much play, and I hope it will in the days, months, and years ahead, is whose ever idea it was to do this Freedom Plaza thing and to recognize these 65 local civil rights leaders. You know, maybe a third to a half of their names most of us have heard. Uh, uh, a significant chunk we had not. I really hope it's not a one-and-done kind of thing or reserved purely for the people who go to see the embrace, but uh, do you, you know, we didn't ask anybody about this on Friday. Do you have any idea what the genesis of that idea was, who it came from? But because I think it's as important in a lot of ways for this community as is the embrace itself, Michael Curry. Well, you know, I feel honored. I was on one of the hosts uh, of the committee for the Embrace Boston with uh, Maisha Mentor Jordan. I was honored that Amari Paris Jeffrey asked me to, to co host the effort. Uh, and I thought what was interesting was he reached out to us early and he said, Michael, we want to recognize other leaders throughout the history who contributed to this work in, in Boston and Massachusetts. And we each got to offer names. You know, I, I oh, offered really? up a few names myself. Uh, Florence Lesore, which most people don't know in Massachusetts, was the first African-American woman from Boston who led an NAACP chapter in the country. Oh. 
Um, so we got to really lift up names of people. You know, we don't do history very well, Jim and Marjorie, in this country. We don't know the history. And, and there's a there's an African proverb I love. Is, I love it says, if you know the beginning, the beginning well, the end won't trouble you. Mm-hmm. We don't know the beginning well. So then we get tripped up over critical race theory and integration and equity because we don't know the beginning well. You don't know the middle either. I mean, we don't, we don't know. A lot. I'm always embarrassed, you know, mortified that, you know, I mean, I went to college. I studied American studies. Why, why didn't I learn any of this? Well, but Marjorie, forget American studies. You know, when we heard about the Tulsa massacre, the yeah, both of us said how embarrassed we were. When we heard about so many, when we talked to Don Lemon and in his book, and he, he writes about, was in Louisiana, a comparable, not of the same magnitude, but I'm embarrassed to say, I've learned so much history about the Kings in just the last, and their Boston connection in just the last week uh, uh, from the march to his speech to the legislature, I think it was the day before, and also the story. You know, Marjorie, one of the beauties of you, I should say, Michael, if I can take a brief respite. Of the many. is why. Well, you (laughs) said that. It's probably true. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking all these haughty policy questions for everybody comes. She looks at Martin Luther King III, and the first question she asks is, so when you were a little kid sitting at the dinner table with your parents, did your mother ever say the first time she saw your father, he was too short, he was too this, (laughs) he was that she wasn't in you know and it, i mean well oh i just thought it was God, a great story so right great. he's in the green chevy she looks out and she goes gee he's kind of short and he looks like a boy <laughs> i was expecting a full-grown man but then how as the baritone worked on her he grew taller and taller yeah, and taller yeah, and taller. Love i love it. that story love it. Yeah. Love it. yeah so I much think, you know I'm sorry good their, their connection in, in, in Massachusetts and at 12th Baptist Church, it was one of the uh, women leaders of 12th Baptist who introduced them. You know, I jokingly said, because I was the keynote speaker at the 12th Baptist Church MLK event earlier this week. And I said at the, the, uh, at the celebration, I said, we didn't have black people meet back then or name the, the social media chat group and connection. So she had to swipe right to New England Conservatory of Music to connect the two of them. So I said that jokingly, but the reality is it was meant to happen. Boston has been the birthplace, the the incubator for some of the greatest leaders of our time, from William Lloyd Garrison to uh, Frederick Douglass to Du Bois. Uh, so many people, Phyllis Wheatley, so many people have come through here. We don't know that story. Yeah. And if we knew that story, then we'd know that we have a place to be. We should be leading the nation in racial justice. We should be leading the nation in health equity. We should be leading the nation because that's what we do. And I wish people would uh, stop by the embrace, uh, read the names, look up the history, and then get to work. Well, we're surely not leading the nation in racial justice. And, and you know, more than one person with whom we spoke on Friday, maybe you uh, as well, said uh, this is a really important symbol and symbols do matter. But I think everybody conceded symbolism in and of itself is not enough. We know that Amari Paris Jeffries doesn't miss an opportunity to talk about the Embrace Center to be built in Nubian Square and all the functions. What impact do you think this has, this this physical embodiment of love and the work of these two amazing people and then 65 other amazing people. Do you worry it's a one and done kind of thing, like so many things are in our life? Or do you really see it as sort of a cracking open of a door that hopefully is going to continue to open a bit more in the years ahead? Yeah, no, I don't see it as a one and done. And the reason why I don't see it as a one and done, because I know that the people behind this are not one and done Mm -hmm. people. Uh, Amari Paris Jeffries is not one and done. 
Um, and I think his team that he's pulled together, these phenomenal, mostly younger people, I think, you know, we're in a critical place in Boston where we have some young, um, really powerful young leaders that I've, I, I, I've grown up and raised here. And I've been a young activist since I came home from college. I don't remember a time where I saw a young generation of activists like I see now. You know, Shagun Ida will work for, for the city, Amari Paris Jerry, Sheena Collier, uh, Malia Lazu, right? I can go down the list and Tanisha Sullivan and others. We have a critical mass of leaders who won't let us forget, Jim, and a critical mass of leaders who won't let us off the hook. So they'll raise the issues. They'll turn this momentum around the memorial, around the monument into conversation and into action. So if you want to do something, deal with the one in three black people who have passed due medical bills. Deal with the fact that uh, black folks are twice more likely as whites uh, to state that discrimination exists as a a major problem in healthcare. Uh, Let's deal with the poverty rates, the incarceration rates, the education inequity, all these things we become weathered to. I love that term. We become weathered to these inequities, so they become normalized to us. That's what that monument symbolizes to me. So, Michael Curry, one of the other problems I have is uh, someone called a few minutes ago and said uh, something about why did uh, Thomas, uh, the sculptor, decide to do it this way? And I said we asked him that on Friday, and unfortunately the caller said, what did he say? And, of course, I had no recollection what his answer was, (laughs) and Marjorie bailed me out. But uh, we asked you on Friday something, and I can't remember what you said. Obviously, you not only play here as a leader on so many fronts, not to mention your League of Community Health Centers, but as we said on the board of the National NAACP, we know what Boston's reputation has been like through the years around the country. We've all mentioned ad nauseum that horrible survey that was done of African-Americans around the country. What's the least welcoming city? There were eight. We came in number one, not number one best, but number one worst by a landslide. How, how, I mean, this was big national news, needless to say, the embrace itself. How will this change or begin the change or not change at all the perception that uh, is had around the country, including within your organization, the NAACP, which, by the way, is going to be here for its national convention this summer? You know, I, when I worked in a, a company here long, many years ago, I remember uh, one of the leaders in the company, and I was a junior person in the organization, he said, know your hallway reputation. <laughs> know what people are thinking and saying about you, even though you're not in the room, right? I think Boston needs to know our hallway, hallway reputation, right? Our national reputation, our international reputation. People come here for the seafood, for the waterfront, for the great uh, scenery, But they also know when they get off that plane and they arrive, they may be greeted with um, some attention at a restaurant or downtown, or they may not see themselves reflected in Faneuil Hall or Cleveland Circle or Coolidge Corner. Because black and brown folks, and I always say, Marjorie, it's not like we're not here. So if we're here and you don't see us there, what does it mean that we're not shopping, that we're not socializing, that we're coming with our picnic baskets to eat down at the waterfront? It means that Boston still has issues embracing all of its diversity. And it shows up in the fact that we're we're relegated to certain neighborhoods yeah. and not feeling welcomed in others. So while I say, Jim, that New York is racist, right, that L.A. is racist, and I travel to those c- cities, I get to speak in those cities, they also have their challenges. Boston is unique, but one, because of our, our people of color population is so diverse, and two, we have such a divided history here. We need to confront that. I tell people all the time, it's, let's embrace the fact that we have racism in Boston, and then let's come up with a strategy, a, a roadmap to doing something about it. 
Well, you know, we talked about this a lot on Friday. I, I thought the, the continued racism in Boston is one of the big reasons why it was great that the this is like where the Freedom Trail is. You know, this this sculpture is right there in probably, I don't know if it is the biggest tourist destination in Boston, but it's certainly one of them, the Freedom Trail, Boston Common, the Public Garden. And it's, it's there. It's not, you know, it's not in Nubian Square. It's not in Grove Hall. You know what I mean? It's, the only it's better the place they could have <laughs> built it was on second place at Fenway. And since they probably couldn't do that yeah. second base, other than that, that was a, this is about I as mean, prominent a destination. Maybe I'm being naive, but I, I think that matters somewhat, doesn't it? I think I think it does. I, you know, I'm I'm sitting here today, and I got a little emotional uh, as I was on the Embrace uh, uh, Plaza, thinking about 57 years ago. I think about Dr. King marched from Roxbury mm-hmm. to the Commons with 22,000 people. Mm-hmm. And here's what I think, Marjorie and Jim, and you were there on the Embrace um, for the unveiling. It was raining that day. Yeah, both days. Just yeah. like it was raining. Yeah. I thought that that was um, right. appropriate, that it was raining that day. So if you see the pictures, they're holding the umbrella over Dr. King as he speaks. Yes. And I thought that that was, and the sun came out a bit, just to remind us that this was um, a reflection on those those 22,000, that 57 years ago. I, I think I'm, I'm inspired as, as I sit here at this memorial breakfast that so many people, I said in the, my, my remarks uh, yet last night at the uh, Embrace Gala, I said, I'm glad so many people are woke and other people are waking up, but some of us are insomniacs. Um, Rachel Rollins is an insom- insomniac. Uh, Ayanna Presley, who just spoke, is an insomniac. Um, Sarah Ann Shaw and Jean McGuire are insomniacs. I can name a whole bunch of them. Way before George Floyd and way before COVID-19 and the equities, they were already seeing all of this. They were already, yeah. and nobody paid attention to them. People turned a blind eye, and now they're listening. That's what makes me feel inspired on this particular Martin Luther King holiday. You know, also a little bit of history, not maybe at this, well, it's a pretty big deal. I'm sure, as you know, yesterday Joe Biden delivered the sermon at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, obviously where King himself spent years as head pastor, and Senator Warnock is now. He was the first sitting president to ever do that. Here's a little bit of sound from the service on what would have been Dr. King's 94th birthday. Well, we do well to remember that his mission was something even deeper. It was spiritual. It was moral. The goal of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Dr. King led, stated it clearly and boldly, and it must be repeated again now, to redeem the soul of America. Does it matter that Biden went there yesterday, Michael Curry? I think it matters. Um, you know, people have to show up, and they have to show up in places and spaces where people need to know that you represent them, that you're their president too. Um, and they need to see you and hear from you that you're committed to the causes that matter to them, whether it's voting rights or uh, I was just talking uh, about our, the challenges in education. It's actually the theme here at the breakfast this morning is this, the need to support our kids and our teachers, our teachers of color, our students of color. Uh, it's important that the president bring that message right to the church, right to Roxbury, to downtown Atlanta on Peachtree Avenue. And I'm so glad that this president, and I know many of the folks who work for him, uh, I've had a chance to talk to Vice President Kamala Harris at NAACP events. There's a, there's a compass in that office that is helping to direct him in the right uh, path. And I'm just, um, I'm glad that he did show up. 
You know, may I bring up um, one kind of downer subject where, before you go? Um, I, I kind of naively thought that if the Supreme Court, as expected, gets rid of affirmative action, that colleges could kind of go around uh, that that action and still go after uh, kids of color, you know, scholars uh, from underserved areas. But when I read this story this morning from the New York Times, it talked about how that's going to be really hard for these schools um, because they do a lot of outreach to high schools in, um, you know, in inner city high schools where they're, they're mostly kids of color or they go smart, ki- smart kids of color in different schools. They do a lot of efforts and they have a lot of lists and they have a lot of help getting those kids that that could be limited too. So this could really be – what do you think is going to happen to – Diversity at colleges, if they do, if the Supreme Court does succeed in, in not getting, they could even get rid of scholarship programs designated for kids of color. Well, I'm deeply troubled, and again, elections have consequences, right? Supreme Court justices uh, play an impact on our lives. You know, I think about, uh, I was a college student, uh, left Boston Latin Academy, went to college in Minneapolis, St. Paul at McAllister College, and I remember. Uh, the dean of admissions, I did not have great test scores, but I was an honor society student. I was a pretty good student at a very good school and yet did not come in with, with some of the strong um, indicators that I'd be successful at McAllister. But yet uh, the dean of the admissions uh, let me in uh, and I ended up becoming an admissions staffer and, and really pushing him to think. And this is my quote I love to both of you. It's the Frederick Douglass quote. It says, it's not just the height you reach, but the depths from which you come. So give me a latchkey yeah. kid, a kid who comes from a violent neighborhood, who had one parent, who overcomes that and makes it onto that college campus. What does it say about his or her potential to be great? So when I think about all the blessings in my life, Marjorie, I think, thank God for Bill Shane, the dean of admissions, who did not have handcuffs on him to really stretch the boundaries on how do you think about intelligent, bright uh, students with, with potential. The Supreme Court decision should be troubling to all of us. Because what it says is, after all the legacy seats that went to white children, after all the the foolishness that existed within our education system that created an opportunity, not because you was the best and best and brightest, it right. created it because you had a good pa- a parent who had money, relationships, and so forth, and that you were uh, acclimated or adjusted to those uh, standardized tests, those height state tests. We should be concerned that the games change now, and that the Supreme Court's about to change the game again and say, you know what, now we're going to keep more of you out of college. Last but not least, and I want to say this from a diversity standpoint, every time I get a chance, I say, there's a little black girl in Roxbury that's meant to find a cure for cancer. We'll never know her because she won't get into the college, because she won't have the academic rigor that prepares her to be that scientist, that physician we need her to be. That's real. Like, that's not exaggerated. Unless we think white men are the only one with talent that the kids who make it into these prestigious schools are the only one with talent. We really got to address that in America and we need to find a way around the Supreme court. So Michael, would you have not been at McAllister if this Supreme court likely ruling had happened way back when, if they went strictly by test scores, as if as some schools were doing at the time, McAllister, I think Carlton and McAllister were two schools I'm looking at. I was looking at as an East coast student, they were highly ranked. I think McCall- uh, Carlton was set 12, McAllister yeah. was like 25th in the Great country. Great schools. And, and, and I wouldn't have got in, gotten in if, if they had judged and weighted mm-hmm. the test scores as high as, as some schools do. They saw potential in other places, 
and they allowed me in. That's what I'm talking about is if we, we get too strict around how we admit students, those tests don't prove, call my language, they don't prove a damn thing. And the reality is there's potential in all of us. Let's tap into that talent. You know, I, I said something nice about Marjorie. I'm going to say something nice to you about 20 seconds. No one better than you thanks people from along the way. You never miss an, I'm serious, you never miss an opportunity. And I, I should learn a lesson from you. Yeah. Happy Martin Luther King Day there, Jim Michael just sort Curry. of appeared on a whole okay. cloth. You know, I knew you would do that. <laughs> I can't say anything. Michael, we'll see you soon. Take Thank care Thank you yourself. very much, Enjoy Michael. See you later. We've been speaking with Michael Curry, President and CEO of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. I know, I know. He's also a member of the N- National NAAC Board of Directors, NAACP Board of Directors, where he chairs the board's advocacy and policy committee. Coming up after the new news, the ground truth, Charlie Sennett, joins us to talk about the state of war in Ukraine and the continued threats to democracy in Brazil, plus Joe Biden's problem with with, uh, classified documents. We're going to talk to Charlie Sennett next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. I'm Jim Browdy, head of Boston Public Radio. In Brazil, a former top official under defeated President Jair Bolsonaro has been arrested in connection with the Capitol Trump-style riot that took place a little over a week ago. We'll get the full story on that and the latest on Ukraine with the Ground Truth Project's Charlie Sennett. Then it's Shirley Leung from the Boston Globe on a surprisingly warm relationship between Massachusetts' business community and our new governor, Maura Healey, and some EV road trips Globies took with mixed results. I'm Marjorie Egan. It's MLK Day, and we'll visit some of the incredible conversations we had on Friday's show from the Embrace unveiling, including with members of the King family. Plus, we'll reflect on what the new monument means and how to best spend today giving back with the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emma G. Price III. Then we'll open it up to you and take your calls on public service. Should we mandate it on snowy days like today when the majority of us are content to sip tea at home in our sweatpants? All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. He's Tim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. Welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. We're at the library tomorrow. We hope you join us. We'll be at the library on Friday as well. We're joined now by Charlie Sennett. He's a GBH news analyst and editor-in-chief of the Ground Truth Project. Hey there, Charlie. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. Hey, Charlie. Great to to talk to you. So tell us um, some good news for Ukraine, these new tanks from us. Excuse yes, me. Excuse me. And the Bless e- you. <laughs> Thank you. And the That's EU in violation was- of your contract. I know. Way, I thought right I was going to yeah. be able to get it before, during the news break, but I just couldn't work it up during the news break. Sorry. So anyway, um, what about these new tanks? I mean, what are they and why is this a big deal or what is it a big deal? I think it is a big deal. I mean, Zelensky, President Zelensky has been been clamoring for this kind of support because the ground war is just so important. This has become a war of attrition that's closer to the battle lines of a of like World War II than it is of modern warfare. And it 
it's going to require tanks. I mean, this is in preparation for what many military analysts are saying will be a very intense spring offensive by Russia, counteroffensive by Ukraine. And they're going to need the tanks in order to be able to execute on that. So we saw today that UK, Poland and France have all indicated that they will send tanks. And um, that is tremendously good news to Zelensky. And he's he's really he's really touting this as a very significant. I think the flip side of this is that I think Russia is going to see this as an act of aggression. And this is this is three NATO countries saying they will supply tanks. And um, it'll be interesting to see how the Kremlin responds directly to this. And so it, 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 it ups the stakes, but it also recognizes that the spring will be definitive in what has become of a war of attrition with very old-fashioned, static, conventional battle lines. You know, uh, in the first uh, hour of the show, we demonstrated conclusively that neither of us knows anything about heart history, and we're now about to uh, demonstrate conclusively we know nothing about the military Uh either. So I was going to ask you exactly that. Uh, One of the things I was critical of, again, as uninformed as I am about the military, is it seemed to me early on in this war that whatever Putin said we couldn't do, we couldn't do. It was seen as an act of aggression, et cetera, even if it was needed by uh, the Ukrainians. And it appears we're infringing on that a little bit, which, in my opinion, is a good thing. So how is the decision made that we can cross a line to this point, but we can't cross a line to that point, whatever that is, because that's the thing that provokes a nuclear response. Is that even close to a clear question? Do you, do you know what I'm... Yeah, no, I think it's... I see a good question in there. Somewhere in there. <laughs> I think, no, really, I think it's 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 hard to talk about because every step is so measured, right? Mm-hmm. And that frustrates some, many. But I think it also speaks to just how um, fateful this this war is and what it means for Europe and what it means for the world. This is a war uh, between democracy and autocracy. It's a war against aggression that you can't go into your neighbor's country and just invade with tanks because you decided to because you have your own domestic political concerns or whatever motivated Putin. And 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 it becomes an epic war because of its potential to become a world war with nuclear weapons at stake. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that we could be in a situation where we need to be more measured and thoughtful. And so I, I, I admire and appreciate the tremendous caution yet cautious, yet confident steps we've taken to support Zelensky. I think, I think Ukrainians are frustrated that the United States is taking so much caution into this, but I can't help but see some wisdom in it. And I think we're going to have to remain deliberative and purposeful and push forward. So if you really think about what what happened with these tanks, this offer for tanks to be delivered, I think we're doing a sort of interesting choreography of a step. Like, let's let these European nations do it first. Let's not have Germany do it because Russia will exploit that because they'll say these Nazis are trying to come back and invade. It'll, It'll provoke all that historical misinformation and disinformation that Putin tries to put out there in this conflict. But by making it UK, France, and Poland, you're talking about a different kind of draw, mm-hmm. a, a different way of looking at history. 
And by not having it be the United States, you take some of the superpower element out of it. It's a pretty sophisticated step, and it's a good one. And it's one that Zelensky feels uh, that he desperately needs in order to be ready for the spring. Does that help answer, Jim? Does that well, I think get... there was an answer somewhere in there, Charlie. That was, <laughs> that was a perfect <laughs> answer, <laughs> actually. Thank fair, you. Fair. Oh, Thank you. No, I mean, because oh, I think what you're, what you're saying is, like, why are we listening to what Putin – why are we letting That Putin is what I'm reply? trying to – yeah, well, okay. yeah. Uh, and we're not, I don't think we should, and I don't think we are, but I think we are being cautious, and I think we are being careful. And I think this is a sign that this war mm-hmm. is going to escalate. The spring will be extraordinary in terms of being a definitive part of what, what I believe and what most military analysts believe will be a very long and protracted war of attrition. It's not going to end anytime mm-hmm. soon, but the spring could prove definitive, and we're going to have to help Ukraine get ready for that. And I think this is crossing a previous line, supplying tanks because they're needed, because the war is mm-hmm. changing. And I think we're staying pretty close a pace of how that war is changing and how much support we can give. There's still a lot more clamoring for long range artillery. Uh, we'll see if we do that. The Patriot missile systems, you know, I think have to be approved very soon mm-hmm. and sent very soon in order for them to be ready. But this winter has been a brutal winter for Ukraine, and it's all about holding on. This is this is the battle we're in. We talked about this uh, the last time we were together, and I still think this is the battle. This is a battle in which Putin has recognized that he's not winning on the conventional battlefield, and therefore he's decided to try to break the spirit of the Ukrainian people. And Zelensky gets this, and he's told you know he's told all of them with with great certainty that they have to hang in there despite this barrage of missile attacks, the most recent one over the weekend appears to be the most deadly for civilians of, of a missile attack in the, in, the, in the city of Dnipro, 40 killed and counting. They're still going through the debris. They're still going through the rubble. So, I mean, the stakes are just so high, Jim. I think we're going to get through this winter, but the spring is on the horizon, and that's what this really is about. And factored in a little bit, to try to answer the question a little bit more. No, you did you great. Could at, you could look at the resignation of the German defense minister as part of this equation, too. She's been very cautious. Yeah. She was very yeah. slow. And she got pressured to move on, and she's just done that. So. And those, with, excuse me, I'm just going to ask, that, so those are the missteps that we heard reported on the news, the, the German, uh, this, this woman, she was not moving quickly enough. Those were her missteps. She was just too... Yeah, I don't I can't admit that I know I don't know Christine Lumbrecht's yeah. record that well, but I know from what I've been reading that yeah, the 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 German press began to really sort of put her in the crosshairs and say she's moved too slowly, she's been too deliberate. She has been carrying out the the policy goals of Chancellor Scholz's government, but I also think that she's become the the embodiment of a very slow-moving process of Germany recognizing just what's happening in this war. Remember, she's famous for sending the helmets. She sent mm-hmm. 5,000 helmets as if that's a, some great war support yeah. for Ukraine in its desperate hour of need. And, you know, a lot of clumsy mistakes. She flew her son, I guess, on a, on a helicopter to a vacation. She's, you know, she's, she's had yeah. been sloppy about social media. She's made a lot of mistakes, and and it strikes me as like the political forces are working in Germany. The newspapers have been all over her, forced her resignation, and I don't see a lot of tears over it. 
You know, Charlie, unlike my last question, which was a mere four and a half minutes long, this one can be brief. Can you explain to me why the United States has not kicked Bolsonaro out of the country? The visa or whatever it's called that he's on this A1 thing is reserved for heads of states, etc. He's no longer a head of state engaged in official business. Goodbye. Kick him the hell out of here. And force him to go back to Brazil to face exactly, the music prosecution exactly. as his. I'm totally as one serious. Of the key members of his cabinet just did right. His justice um, minister it was arrested. It was arrested the moment yeah, he stepped right. on the. In uh, all seriousness, right? why are we allowing this guy to hang out in Florida? I don't get this at all. Well, I would say two reasons. One might be that he just went through uh, health procedures, so he's literally been in the hospital recently. That might be one. But the one I think is more interesting is um, I think they don't mind watching him squirm. Right. There's a little bit of squirm meaning worried about being kicked out of the country. Is that what you mean by squirm? No, I mean, I think Bolsonaro is squirming. I think he knows he's going to face the music in Brazil. I I think he knows that that he is like this this Trump wannabe. Um, You know, the Brazilians have have just literally choreographed and mimicked uh, the Trump presidency right right down to the January 6th attack on the Capitol mirrored on January 8th in Brasilia in their capital. And I think they're just sort of like watching Bolsonaro have to have to just sit here and squirm. He's not in his own country. There's nothing he can do. And I think they'll make a decision soon. They certainly have the grounds to force him out. He's he's what we might call uh, an illegal immigrant. Right. Uh, so why don't why, why why don't we just send him off to DeSantis? Exactly. Why don't we ship him on a plane to Florida, whatever the capital of Florida? I know is. some people in Martha's Vineyard who'd be more than willing to pay for pay for Bolsonaro's trip to DeSantis's district. We're ta- that was, by the way, how brilliant would that be? We're talking to uh, Charlie Senate from the Ground Truth Project. You know, Charlie, you're you're a, a devoted newsman, f- foreign correspondent. Um, I know you've probably followed the uh, career of Bernard Kalb, longtime foreign affairs guy. Uh, had a nice long life, but he just passed away at the age of 100 years old after a fall, apparently. But tell us what he meant to the world of journalism. Yeah, thanks, Marjorie, for asking. I am so proud uh, to say that Bernie Kalb was my dear friend. Of oh, many I didn't years. know that. I, um, I, I knew him for many, many years. We became very close friends, largely through his daughter, Marina Kalb, who's a Massachusetts resident, married to David Feinberg, one of another dear friend and, and a, a board member at Ground Truth. And just some a, a family I love. I've fallen in love with the Kalb family in general. But Bernie was honored uh, yesterday at a funeral, and I was in D.C. for the funeral. And he was honored so deeply. You know, it's 100 years of an extraordinary life, uh, really beginning in Brooklyn, very humble beginnings. Um, you know, his father was a tailor who emigrated from Poland right before World War I. His, his mother was from Ukraine, actually, from Kiev. And they are just such a classic Brooklyn success story about a young kid who goes to City College and makes good. And his kid brother, Marvin Kalb, didn't do so bad either. And together, I think I am of the age, and I, I think we, we all are on this call uh, to remember when the Calbs were a force to reckon with. They were so powerful. Marvin and Bernard Calb just just really cast a a big shadow in journalism for good reasons. They were fantastic journalists. Marvin, still with us, beautifully honored his brother, Bernie, his older brother, just glowingly, as did Ted Koppel yesterday, honor uh, Bernie Calb and and said, "I, I consider him a brother. And he just sort of beautifully said to Marvin, so... 
we now say goodbye to our brother. And it was so touching. And, you know, we talked about Barbara Walters um, earlier, like last month when she passed away. And this passing feels to me equally meaningful. For Barbara Walters, she, she carved out a future for a generation of women in journalism. For me, what Bernard Kalb represents is an, a time of great integrity and truth when nothing mattered more than doing everything you could to be as fair as possible in your pursuit of the truth. And Bernie kept that struggle in his life and it defined his journalism. It defined his personality. And if, if you remember, he has a moment in 1980s, in the mid 80s, when he becomes the spokesman for the State Department. And he talked about how blessed he felt as an American to have this amazing life as a journalist. And he wanted to give back. So he joined uh, uh, the Reagan era um, uh, uh, State Department for under, a while. I think it was under Schultz, right? And he famously, uh, there was a misinformation and disinformation campaign in Libya that was exposed by the Washington Post. And when, when Bernard Kalb found out this was true, that they were lying to journalists about Libya, and he was asked to continue the lie, he, he refused to, and he mm. quit. And he gave a very powerful uh, and very honest speech or, or, or press conference where he talked about why he was quitting. And it, and it kind of goes down in history as a wonderful example of his integrity and of what he called at the time a, quote, modest dissent. And he felt like he had to dissent against misinformation by our government to its journalists because he is in his heart a journalist and he believes that if we devalue the truth, we're down a really slippery slope. And hearing that now in an age in which truth feels so under attack, I think I think the, the way to honor Bernie Kalb and his hundred years of an amazing life covering Vietnam and covering all of all of the tumult of of his century, the last century, um, we should think about what has happened to an erosion of truth and just how we can honor Bernie by keeping on keeping on and fighting the good fight for truth. Well, before you go, I wanted a chance to ask you about uh, uh, Joe Biden. I mean, those just one last thing I got to sure. say, Bernie also was an amazing dresser. I don't know if you ever saw him on television. The guy's ties and his 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 wonderful expression of like color and how he would carry himself through the world. Like he just was amazing. So all of this was feted yesterday, but I wouldn't be doing him justice if I didn't point out his sartorial excellence. Okay. A lot of people said the same thing about me on Greater Boston. <laughs> That's but right. Very really similar. I can tell you they've never said it about me. But I, I Nor me, my friend. friend let me tell you. Uh, so before we go, we don't usually ask you about President Biden and his politics, but because uh, you're the only person we can ask today, uh, Charlie, uh-huh. we're asking you. You're the only person we can ask. <laughs> well, we're not it's really a hell of a recommendation. We, we couldn't find well, anybody else. So. We're, not, we're doing a lot of MLK stuff today. We're not doing the Joe Biden's trivia. Well, because... And rightly so. And by the way, beautiful coverage uh, Thank you. of Thanks. MLK today. I've really enjoyed listening. Thanks. For those people who are not fans of the former president, uh, Trump, I would include myself in that group, but you know, thought that, that Mar-a-Lago, this... Uh, having all those documents, the classified documents, refusing to give them back to the government, the archives when they were repeatedly asked, having to get the FBI in was one of the things that could really cause trouble for Donald Trump in addition to January 6th, the George investigation, etc. Now we find out that uh, President Biden had documents too, not as many, and of course he um, did the right thing in terms of returning them, but it almost doesn't matter because this is kind of 
muddied the waters so much. Yeah, don't for them. please don't regale us with how they're different. We know we know they're different. We know they're different. Just want to get your reaction to how damaging this damn thing. Yeah. Can I yeah, well, I am. I, let's be clear. I am no John King nor Chuck Todd. I, 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 I try my best to cover the world with a Boston accent. That's what I'm trying to do. But I, I would I know I would say it's very hard to assess because they, they are different. Sorry, Jim. And also, we don't know what's in the documents. It's that right. simple. We don't know what those six pages was one now six, five more were found. We don't know what's in it. What you can assess politically is that um, despite the profound differences between the situation with uh, President Trump and the situation with President Biden and how these came to light and how how you would define, I think one is obstruction, the other as an attempt at transparency, this doesn't look good for Biden. I mean, this doesn't look good. He keeps it keeps changing. It keeps shifting. Um, and I do think it's it's fair uh, for there to be uh, a lot of light on this and a lot of questions. And I think we need to keep asking the questions because it is important that we have these documents preserved and the classified documents are honored. Or if you're going to share, to share them or, or, or you're going to find some way that you think they need to come out, then, then I believe in that too. Remember, yeah. I did a whole series with Dan Ellsberg who leaked a lot of classified yeah. documents known as the Pentagon Papers but for purpose, for reason, what you can't do is sort of hide them in your garage, you know, um, and, and and then claim feign surprise when they're found. And, and then when we find more, I think I think Biden has a lot of questions to answer here. And I'm glad to see there's going to be a special prosecutor. There should be. And, and we should get to the bottom. Of and it. by the way, one other thing, and then we'll wait for John King tomorrow. The fact that the chair, the new Republican chair of the Oversight Committee had the goal yesterday to say, well, they raided Mar-a-Lago. Why didn't they raid the White House? Well, you dope. It's because <laughs> Biden turned it over the second he found out. Now, it doesn't mean there's not an Jim, underlying problem. You're pointing out the differences. Right. Okay, forget it. Okay, uh, you have no, 30 seconds. but they are differences. Okay, you have 30 seconds. Is this new guy your boss or is he your uh, equal? What is this new guy, your joint? Oh, that yeah. You mean uh, Rob Zesky? Yeah, you have thirty yes. seconds. Yeah, no, we yeah. Thank you. We we uh, we announced this this last week that uh, we have a new CEO and president of Ground Truth. Remember, six months ago, I decided to step back, focus on. Yeah, I heard you were forced out, actually, but that's okay. We can discuss that another day. Go ahead. There's a lot of truth to that too, but I have no comment. I, no, I I. I love our organization, Ground Truth. We have a lot of room to grow. And I believe deeply in this idea of founder syndrome, which means get out of the way and let it grow. <laughs> good. Well, so, good. yes, Jim, there is some truth to that. Uh, but I made the decision myself to try to get out of the way. We've done a very independent process to hire a new CEO. I was not part of the selection committee. Oh. And proud of that. I think the independence is there. But then I was so pleased to hear that our board, we have an outstanding board of directors. They chose Rob uh, Zesky, who was our former chief operating officer. He worked for us for about a year and a half, um, an amazing year and a half in which I learned a lot. Our organization thrived and grew, and I was very sad to see him go. And he went to Harvard Business School to head up the Social Enterprise Institute, which is sort of the nonprofit arm of the business school at Harvard. He's brilliant. He's a real thought leader in this space. He's from Lexington. 
Um, he's an amazing person at unifying a team and pulling us forward. Um, it's a hard time to manage in a post-COVID workforce to get a team working together to keep everyone Tell focused. And he, like our entire team, recognizes that the crisis in journalism is profound. We have a chance at Ground Truth through Report for America and Report for the World to make a difference by supporting local journalism to serve communities here in America and around the world. Rob's in love with that mission. He's in love with the idea of its support for democracy. And he comes at it in a very interesting way as a guy who was the CEO of Second Harvest, which is a the world, I think it's one of the country's largest food banks in Minnesota. He had a tremendous success there in growing that organization and is is known in the nonprofit world for his ability to scale and is sort of wonderfully curious about about journalism and open to learning more yeah. about it. It's not his tradition or his passion, but we need his skills for executive management. Well, you said you were sorry to see him go. We're sorry to see you go, but we got to go. Goodbye, Charlie. Charlie. Sennett. It is Goodbye. great to see you. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. As always, be well, Charlie Sennett. From the Thank Ground you very Truth much, Project. Charlie Sennett. Charlie Sennett is a GBH news analyst and editor-in-chief of the Ground Truth Project. Coming up, Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young with what the business community can expect from the new governor, Moore Healy. But before we go to break, we're going to be playing a sound today uh, from Dr. King, uh, and some of it is coming up next. This is sound from the WGBH archives featuring Dr. King on a show called The Negro and the American Promise. It's from 1963 where he responds to criticism from Malcolm X arguing that nonviolent resistance is detrimental to the fight for equal rights. Uh, we are not engaged uh, in a struggle that means we sit down and do nothing. Uh, that there's a great deal of difference between non-resistance to evil and non-violent resistance. Uh, non-resistance leaves you, in, uh, leaves you in a state of stagnant passivity and deadened complacency wherein nonviolent resistance means that you do resist in a very strong and determined manner. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mardrigan, Jim Browdy, we're at the library tomorrow. We hope you are too. We're joined now by Shirley Young. Shirley's a business columnist for the Boston Globe. Joins us every week. Hey, Shirley. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Shirley Young. Great to to see you. So uh, we have two very great columns, but very diametrically different, about driving around in EVs. One, uh, Joan Lukey, who is a very well-known attorney in town, uh, she drove an EV down south had a terrible time from here down to the south. And your colleagues, Sabrina Shankman and Aaron Pressman, uh, your colleagues, they drove around New England looking for EV charges, and they had a very easy time. And donuts, too, yeah. yeah. But um, so I guess, what do we split the difference? Or don't go to Georgia and EV? Is that the... (laughs) Is that the message? That's the lesson. Well, I felt that, you know, it's funny when you read uh, my colleague Sabrina and and Aaron's story, right? I feel like the headline was rosier than the actual story. Yeah, I agree. Right, right. Uh, It seems like if you have a Tesla, right, 
uh, it, was, it was a lot easier to find charging. Um, and and that's, what, that's what also was Joan's experience. And Joan drove a Kia uh, EV and Aaron drove a Kia EV in New England and Sabrina rented an, a Tesla. And I didn't, I didn't, I assumed that electricity is electricity. I thought that the, you know, the Tesla, uh, you know, EV stations, um, anybody could use them, but only Teslas can, they're only designed for Teslas. Um, it's kind of like an Apple product, right? That's right. Uh, la da compatible, You know? Well, let me, um, and so, good, good. I'm sorry. Good. The, the te- so the, uh, I learned the Tesla uh, infrastructure is much more built up. Um, and for everyone else, for Kia and others, um, th- there's a long way to go, especially if you drive south like Joan did. I mean, it was kind of scary. I mean, she was down to like, you know, 11 miles left in the tank and she even uh, knew enough to carry her home charger so she could charge it at the hotel. Which charges about three well, miles an hour, this by partly, the way. I, I don't know, but isn't this partly political? I mean, you have some of these politicians down south who are climate change deniers. So why would you need electric cars if there's no problem with fossil fuels? You know what I mean? I mean, could be political, but I, I reading reading Aaron and Sabrina's experience in New England. I don't know if I would run out to get a a non Tesla right away. It sounds like we we also still have a lot of work to do uh, here in New England in terms of building up I the agree infrastructure. With you know, a, a friend of mine just bought a Tesla, and he asked me not to mention his name. Oh, okay. So I won't mention his uh, name. <laughs> but I, I'm sorry. What? But, you know, can I, Wait, you, you have right. You don't you have a Tesla? You got you just got a Tesla, right? Some you people did. say I just bought a Model Three. I'm neither yep. confirming Lally nor Dom. denying. Uh, let me just very say, very snazzy, Charlie. Very snazzy. One, I learned I didn't know any of this stuff until I had the car, and I just was in Montreal over Christmas. And, Montreal over Christmas. Okay, fine, Marjorie. And, and uh, uh, but it is totally true having a Tesla with their superchargers, which are almost everywhere, and it directs you to superchargers. It tells you how soon you have to get it. Is a whole different ballgame. The takeaway from these two pieces, both of which I thought were quite important, is the Fed's got to start spending this five billion dollars from the two major pieces of legislation for charging stations. And apparently, I hope I have the number right, we have roughly 400 or 500 million we're going to spend in the state. I think it's $100 million a year. If any people in positions of authority, whether it's Joe Biden or Maura Healy or people under them, we'll talk to Bill McKibben about this tomorrow, actually, Marjorie, because he lives in Vermont, is uh, if they don't start speeding up these charging stations, uh, wherever they can be, particularly in a lot of low-income communities, by the way, where they're virtually non-existent, then the sale of EVs is going to stagnate, and this goal to get people out of gas guzzlers like me and into an electric vehicle just aren't going to happen. It is huge, and that's my takeaway from these two pieces. Jim, what was your experience in Canada? Are they a little farther ahead in terms of getting no, it's pretty much No, it, it's pretty much the same. However, it's just the the... The, the software infrastructure, for lack of a better expression, in the Tesla, letting you know, as I say, where you have to go. And once you get there, the, the power that they have and the speed. I mean, there are the average charger that's available other than these superchargers. For those who don't know this yet, I learned along the way, charge your car at 25 to 30 miles an hour. I mean, yeah. to fill a tank, in quotes, can take eight hours. Right. Uh, right. And, and a Tesla, you fill the whole damn tank. In 30 or 40 minutes, that's a real big difference, you know? Right. 
I mean, that's what I learned from Joan's yeah. um, piece that, uh, you know, the, the charging stations are not created equal, you know, and um, also I, 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 I totally didn't think about you actually pay money, right? Like you have to just like you pay for gas. Yeah, but it's a lot cheaper, a lot electric cheaper. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah, but I didn't think about that way. But yeah. uh, but you know, surely the, the other option is I was going to say, if you're not going to buy an electric vehicle is to uh, uh, have a buy a supercharger from this company in Springfield that builds the orange and red lines because they are clearly doing such a good job. Oh, God. Maybe we should give them the $500 million. You know, when I read this story about the chaos inside the the Chinese-owned plant in Springfield, their first American-based plant, that is turning out orange and red lines that either don't work or way behind schedule, not only was I angry at them, the note, the MBTA's ability to oversee anything is virtually non-existent. I, yeah. How did this go on so long? Oh, you got to talk about the guys watching Netflix movies because they, they have nothing they, to they do. They have nothing to do. Yeah. Well, also that terrible story. I mean, so this was a story by Taylor Dovan. She yeah. talked to um, workers, you know, there and and kind of uh, very concerned concerned former workers and um, where. You know, they they were missing parts um, sometimes, uh, but they would still like work around. You know, the missing build walls around the missing parts, and no one could right. tell and, it was missing. Exactly. <laughs> and also, like, I was struck by the slow pace. Like, yeah. it was like four cars a month that they could produce, and that was. I was like, "What? That's it?" And so, and it was actually kind of really eye opening how slow it's taken to build these cars, and then. Uh, they haven't there there's very there's low little to no quality control it it was actually really shocking and but at the same time explains why we are here where we are today uh years later without um you know or the the orange lines and red lines still waiting for for cars that work well this that's good to point out that nearly a decade ago they they got involved with this company right and sometimes you shouldn't take the low bid this low bid was 200 million i believe lower than the next so you kind of think that wow how come they can do it for 200 million maybe you should do your due diligence and look into the company and once again it seems that they failed the the mbta failed I, I also read, I, I think at the very last quote of the story talked about, was this more of a political decision uh, above else under the Deval Patrick administration? Uh, yes. Yep. Having the, the lowest bid, uh, also to have a mandate that factory be in Springfield. Um, if, if you're going to do something like that, which is, I, I don't think this Chinese company had ever built uh, companies in America before. I mean, it really was a you know that the the state should have been on top of this more and of course there was a change of administrations maybe this got lost but but now Maura Healy knows what needs to be done yeah, and but... she should really uh make sure that these cars get built uh the right way and um at a faster <clears throat> and and faster well you know what was most frustrating <clears throat> to me and maybe we'll ask our transportation people Stacey Thompson and Jim Aloisi when they're back this, the takeaway, I, the feel I got was that there's not much that the T can do at this late stage to force accountability. I mean, was that not what you got from this yes. piece? I mean, which is really concerning. So do we just exist with this level of ineptitude going forward or well, well they did write a letter in December. Oh well that is really tough. <laughs> but no, but I just, wow, but I just... a letter. 
Go ahead. <laughs> but public scrutiny is good. That is good. Uh, you know, now you have a, a change of administration. You've got you're going to have a new secretary, transportation secretary. You're going to have a new MBTA GM, yeah. general manager. So this is the opportunity to try to make things right. I mean, I'm a, I'm on a red on the red line. I know we that. don't have new red line cars. And so I'm waiting for new red line cars. So there is something at stake here still. You know what I think we need out of the uh, new administration? I am hoping they have the strength to send a follow-up letter. That's really what I'm hoping <laughs> that, to show we mean business when it comes. We'll discuss. Well, By the way, Maura Healy is going to start Ask the Governor with us. We don't have a date yet. Quite soon, this is obviously on the first day's agenda. Right. She needs to go to the Springfield factory. That's a very right? fine point. Well, she fired the guy from the Chelsea's home, right? Good she, for yeah, her. Yeah. She came right in and got the guy out of there. The Chelsea's uh, people may remember that was the home uh, for veterans where I think it was up to 80 people 86. died 86. from an aptitude in the early days of the COVID uh, of, um, Holyoke pandemic. Soldiers. Holyoke, Holyoke Soldiers yeah. Home. I'm sorry. It was Chelsea is, is – that's right. It was Holyoke and not Chelsea. Anyway, speaking of the new administration – a few days before Christmas, according to the Globe editorial that I read this morning, GBH radio <laughs> host Jim Browdy said he had two questions for Governor-elect That's Moore Healy. That's pretty good editorial, I should say. First, would she break with past governors who claim they are exempt from the state's public record laws? And second, Excellent would she questions. support legislation trimming back exemptions from the state legislature and the, judici- and the judiciary claim? Yes, yes, Healy replied. And Browdy said, well, that takes care of that. But the Globe is is uh, questioning whether it really does take care of that because we have the worst record for public uh, transparency practically in the nation. And um, they point out in the Globe editorial that nothing really has been done yet to assure that her office will be more transparent. So this is a big problem with the T, with the cops, with the state house, with the legislature. People hide behind confidentiality and pending investigation as an excuse to tell you nothing when they could tell you lots of things they just don't want to. It is a big problem, and I'm hoping that um, there'll be more pressure on her to do something. But at the same time, a lot of people mention, right, that this is a democratically controlled uh, Beacon Hill now. So it's really up to the media to to really hold her administration's feet to the fire. Well, you know, the one thing about this in her – I don't know if it's in her defense, but I guess an explanation – it, the, one of the issues that the editorial took was, you know, it's one thing to say you'll you'll support legislation, which is essentially was my question, I guess, that would uh, scale back the. I mean, she has the power, obviously, unilaterally, to scale back or eliminate the failure to uh, um, apply public records laws to your own administration. But obviously, the legislature has to do it vis-a-vis the legislature and potentially the judiciary. Uh, it's going to take some courage to confront the legislature on this because I would assume the lack of transparency is one of the things they res- they guard most closely. So we'll see if uh, if she's willing to follow through. And I hope I hope in light of how curt and to the point, not curt in a negative way, her answer was. I hope she uh, does, and we will talk to her about her. You know, speaking of that, you wrote a piece. I think it was you. It was you about how business leaders feel about Healy. And when I read it, Shirley, I was sort of surprised that the sense I got from those with whom you spoke is they felt pretty good about her in light of the fact that one of the things I admire her the most about is she has had the courage to take on some of the biggest and most powerful uh, uh, um, forces in the corporate world, including the Sacklers. But you painted a distinction, I think, between some of the national players and some of the players back home, right? 
Right. I mean, for those of us who follow, uh, you know, the local business community day in, day out, it, it's very, um, it, it's it's obvious to us that Maura Healy has cultivated uh, a very good relationship with the business community um, from the get-go when she was elected AG, mm-hmm. Attorney General, eight years ago. I mean, she really worked um, the, the room, so to speak. Um, and um, and as I write, I mean, part of it is that she um, she's comfortable because when she was a junior partner at um, Wilmer Hale, um, I've totally forgotten about that. So right, you wrote she about represented it. Yeah. corporate clients, life sciences, technology. So she's very comfortable. And the reason why I wrote this piece beca- is because what people are talking about, uh, they talk about the sharp contrast with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, uh, who does not have a relationship with the business community. There's a lot of tension, you know, particularly with developers. But with Maura Healy, there's almost a sigh of relief that uh, she's governor. And a lot of the business leaders were really nervous about mm-hmm. another change in the guard uh, on Beacon Hill. They really wanted Charlie Baker to run for a third term. And if you notice in Maura Healy's inaugural speech, you know, minutes after she was, uh, you know, uh, sworn as, and as governor, in her speech, there is a, a line in her speech where she says, let me speak directly to the business yeah. community. Yeah. You help drive our economy and you will build our future. In me, you will have a partner every step of the way. So she sent a message loud and clear. I want to work with you. And and Jim, not only, and it's interesting because when you think of her high profile cases as AG, she, she, she went after Facebook. She went after um, Walmart. She went after, uh, you know, pharma companies all the time. Mm-hmm. Um and um, and she was really tough, but she didn't she didn't go as go after some of the kind of the prominent local companies as much. And so they right now they you know they feel like they can work with they might they won't see eye to eye. Like no one's pretending that um, she's going to roll over right as as governor. But but at least that she is someone that they have a relationship with, and they can work through and negotiate and and talk and and talk to her, work together. Well, you know, an issue there also stories in the Globe about housing starts in Boston were down last year and uh, how the business community feels about Mayor Wu and their great concern, the developers in the business communities around the whole, what she calls rent stabilization bill before the legislature. That only becomes law, not a local option, by the way. It wouldn't be a statewide mandate. Each individual community, if it were to become law, could impose uh, some version of rent stabilization or rent control. Uh, If it makes it through the Democratic uh, legislature, which is iffy at best, uh, during the campaign with us and elsewhere, Moore Healy said she'd sign such a thing or she supported such a thing. I assume, speaking of the business community and Healy, there's going to be a huge amount of pressure on Healy not to sign such a thing, even if it were to make it to her desk. No? Yeah, no, I think so. I think th- this is where uh, you know, my my guess is that developers and business community are, are probably thinking there's only so much they can push with Mayor Wu. Uh, so they're probably going to lobby hard uh, with Maura Healy uh, to to listen to their concerns about rent stabilization. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I know developers all say they can't, not all of them say this, but the idea that they can't really afford to build affordable housing because the profit margins. But I don't know. Developers seem to do awfully well. I, I, I'm a little suspicious about that, Shirley. What do you think? Well, I think I would be more suspicious if it were you know, three or five years ago, but right now at this moment, right, interest rates are pretty high. Mm-hmm. Inflation is high. 
the cost of doing business is really high. We might be heading into a recession. So they're a little more, more nervous at this moment, okay. right? To push through on projects. Um, maybe in a year, things will get better. But this um, is anecdotal. When you look at the building around Boston now, and I'm surrounded by Boston, even though I live in Brookline, it's all luxury apartments, isn't it? That's because... It is because that's what we can afford. That that's where they can m- make money, right? Yeah, um, it, it's. Uh, but that was then, before interest rates went up, right? Well, they were that's doing also that before, why yeah. what we discussed last week. The U-Haul numbers show that people yeah. are leaving Massachusetts. In addition to congestion, right. a dysfunctional T, it's unaffordable rent. Unaffordable so, rent. So right. if these developers care about people being in this community, it seems to me they have to get with the affordability program too. Right. So so I think what's going to I think what you're seeing now is, I mean, the, the proposal from Mayor Wu, uh, it's just a proposal They're, oh, they're going to go through some discussions. Um, I think what I think what developers in the business community and, and are looking for and, and the administration itself has flagged at this is the idea of like, you know, let's cut the red tape. Right, uh, right, right, you know, right. So that will bring down the cost of doing business in Boston. Mm. Uh, maybe there's some tax incentives uh, to encourage more affordable housing. So I think that's what I mean. I don't. I think that's what the business community is hoping for. Shirley, okay, it's great Shirley, to see you. Thank you very much, Shirley. I hope things Thanks are going uh, better after the expose in the Globe about the Springfield car and train manufacturing place. Very upsetting. We were speaking with Shirley, the young business columnist for the Boston Globe, who joins us every week. After a quick break, we're going to talk with the Reverends. Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III for the MLK edition of All Revved Up. But we want to play again, as we're doing throughout the day, some sound, some archival sound of, 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 of Martin Luther King. And here he is when he came to Boston on April 22nd of 1965. We, there was a big march right around that time from Roxbury, 22,000 people uh, down to uh, Boston Common. Here is Martin Luther King addressing Beacon Hill lawmakers on that day. I come to Massachusetts not to condemn but to encourage. It is from these shores that the vision of a new nation conceived in liberty was born. And it must be from these halls that liberty must be preserved. Trusted. Local. News. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, HD1 Boston, online at gbhnews.org. GBH News with NPR. What matters to you. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. We're joined now by Reverend Zaria Monroe and Emmett Price, who ran into them at the Embrace unveiling on Friday. By the way, I ran into Irene's wife at Market Basket on Saturday. It's like perfect symmetry. It's great to have you. We know you have really busy schedules on MLK Day. Irene is a syndicate religion columnist and Boston's voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Emmett Price is the founding pastor of the Community of Low Christian Fellowship and Alston, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. And together, of course, they host the All Revved Up podcast. Good morning to both of you and happy MLK Day. 
Good, good, morning, morning, good morning and happy MLK Day. And it was wonderful to actually see you both face to face at the embrace. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was an incredible gathering, an incredible day. Um, what, what did you think, Emmett? What's your, what's your takeaway to use a word I hate, but I use it anyway? What's your takeaway from the day? <laughs> well, you know, a few things. First of all, it was so wonderful to see Irene in the flesh. We have not seen each other in three years. No, that is person. not true. It yes, is absolutely right. true. Yeah. So it was so wonderful to hang out with her during the day. And, you know, the thing about the embrace, first of all, uh, Dr. and, and Mrs. Uh, King's granddaughter, uh, Yolanda, whoa, I think the best speech of the day. I think yeah. she stole the show um, and just so moved and inspired by her. And then also the unveiling of the embrace to be able to walk yeah. under it and to see your own reflection in the <laughs> artwork. Uh, and to be a, a part of the embrace. Yeah. And then finally, I'll say that the uh, 1965 Freedom Plaza, just the whole concept of that um, yeah. was just so amazing. Can I you explain, Emmett? Emmett, people may not know what that means. Explain the Freedom Plaza and what they're going to display. Sure. So Dr. King came back to Boston in 1965, both to address the uh, state legislature, but also to lead a march. And there are many people in Boston, at, particularly at that time, um, of, of a number of different ethnicities, not just all black, who participated in the leadership of civil rights here in Boston. Right. And this Freedom Plaza really honors 65 of those many people. Uh, and what a joy it was to see some of them who were here, their families represented, um, and what a great, great okay. gift to Boston. Right, because many of them were living you know, like Jean McGuire, you know, and the, the, the other thing that Emmett is Jean not McGuire, telling Jean McGuire, the head of Mecco. Big Jean, and, that's right. Yeah, it was just recovered. She's, she's recovered incredibly, right? At 90-something <laughs> years looks old. Great. She yeah. looks great. Physical attack. <laughs> so what was so funny, so Emmett and I were standing together. I have to just tell you the story. So, you know, a lot of the, uh, the folks that we are honoring, many, many were not there, unfortunately. And some have passed on, like Reverend, you know, Michael Haynes. And so when it got to Jean McGuire, she said, I'm here. <laughs> and we just, oh, I didn't hear like, that. That's great. Yes, uh, we did. We said, that's right. You are here. Absolutely. At, at 91 and going strong. Mm -hmm. Freedom Plaza means so much because right outside of that gate here, if you, if, if you recall, there's that monument of the 154th Regiment, you know, so, so the whole symbolism was wonderful. But I just got to tell you, I was so moved on many levels. But one of the things before I tell you this, Emma didn't tell you that uh, Friday was his birthday. Oh so we goodness. had, oh. that's right. So we <laughs> had that. Happy birthday. A Friday, the 13th baby, huh? Were you, that's you right. were born on Friday. Were you born on Friday, Emmett? I believe I was. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you defied all the superstitions then, right? As far as you know, he defied right. all the superstitions. That's right. That's right. Yeah. right. But so, that, so I said to him, and I said, you will never forget the unveiling of the embrace, that you'll be able to tell your grandchildren, because he has children now, about what that meant. But I have to tell you, so Emmett and I had not seen each other face-to-face. -face. We were on the phone. We're on Zoom. We do our, but, uh, our broadcast. But the hug. You know, the embrace reminded me of this when he hugged, because I hadn't hugged him in three years. And so when I was looking at the the uh, embrace monument, I said, you know what a hug is? It, it's this. It, it's just centering black love in the face of resistance here. And when uh, when Emmett hugged me and I thought about the embrace and thinking of King, I said, there, there's a tenderness about his hug and a strength a lifting up and a leaning. And, you know, at the same time, you know, I got you. 
you know, so I was so moved by that. And one of the things I just loved about it, if you go in the middle of it, you feel also that you, you too is being embraced. The, the statue also reminded me the way in which that we huddle, you know, doing prayer, doing communion prayer here. The moment was so symbolic for so many reasons because it's in Boston Common. And I was trying to think of, you know, what kind, where are our monuments? And I was thinking, when I think about where public monuments are, we have the George Washington Monument, right? In the public garden. We got Paul Revere, I think at Old North Church. We got um, Phyllis Wheatley on Commonwealth Avenue. But the wonderful thing about Boston Garden is that it's a tourist area. Yeah. Everybody, everybody goes down there. And I just felt that the moment is that, you know, he talks about the beloved community, if you've heard any of his speeches. And the thing that I felt that that monument embraced was the three forms of love that he that he had with Coretta, but also he hopes in the world. Eros, romantic love. I mean, they were they were married. Agape, the love of God and Philia, you know, brotherly love. And I loved Martin Luther King Third's wife talking about how Coretta Scott King is the architect of his legacy. To be quite honest. He would be a footnote in American history because that's the way whitewashing of, of black participation in this American history, you know, curriculum is about today. But she was fearless. She was the Renaissance woman, the founder of the King Center. We, I mean, he would not be elevated to the level that he that that he is today were it not for her just unbelievable, um, you know, steadfast tenacity. You know- since we're, uh, it appears we ended up, we're, we may end up doing a little round table on Friday. I didn't intend this, <laughs> but let me just say, I said this at the top of the show and I'll say it again. Marjorie and I have been doing this for 25 years. I, I can't think of a broadcast we did that had as much impact on mm-hmm. me, not only standing, th- what, 50 feet away for six or seven hours, whatever it was from this covered up prior to unveiled thing. But I was excited to meet uh, King's son and his daughter-in-law yeah. and his granddaughter <laughs> until I met them. And then I can't tell you what it felt like. It was unbelievable. And when you see the spirit of Dr. King passed on to this 14-year-old kid, and we, pe- <laughs> we played a, a sound from her when she was 10 years old speaking at a March for Our Lives thing about gun control. That was one. And the other thing that had a profound impact on me that I couldn't stop thinking about all weekend is just by coincidence, it was not planned because it was coming to the end where the, the, the unveiling was about to happen. We were talking to Mayor Wu, and then all of a sudden, Andrea Campbell and Moore Healy showed up. Mm-hmm. And I'm <laughs> looking at the three of them and Marjorie as the four of them are talking, and we have the first uh, uh, Asian-American woman, we've never had anybody but a white guy as mayor, in the middle, we have an LGBTQ woman uh, uh, governor. We've never had either of those. And the first black statewide constitutional officer in the history of the Commonwealth, <clears throat> all standing next to each other. And Marjorie's thought, and I just, it was. Power. It's called, because it's called of power. 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 Or what do you call it, Marjorie? The estrogen I, surge. Exactly. <laughs> all right. But it was the day. I mean, Marjorie, you should complete the circle. What, what are your, what were your takeaways from the Friday experience. Well, you know, I, 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 I've been around Boston a very, very long time and um, was a reporter here when I was in my early 20s, which is like 40 years ago, right? And when I think we have a long way to go, obviously, but when I think of Boston then, 
in Boston now, mm. we have, we have, I mean, there were sections, as you guys know, whole parts of Boston, you didn't go mm-hmm. in if you were black. And there were some pretty gruesome uh, crimes that I remember covering as a young person. So as you said, Irene, the idea that this, this statue is not in Grove Hall, it's not in, in, in Nubian Square, it's in a place that's kind of the center, really, of white Boston, when you think about it, because I think many people notice you don't see that many black people walking around the back bay, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the place that I think says something about Boston trying to make some amends here um, for for what we've done, that this is at the center of Boston tourism. Right. Which... And, 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 this, and the thing about that is that the, the truth be told, you don't really see us other than, I mean, meaning black people, other than in the Boston Common, because the tea is there. I mean, there's certain areas as much as we're, you know, that are still kind of segregated that, you know, just doesn't welcome our businesses, the seaport being yeah. another one, because we don't have businesses down there or any need really to anything that says come this way here. But the, uh, what I want to say here is that let us not forget that when King preached in Boston in 1965 to lead the march from Roxbury to the Boston Common, that many of the same issues that we're bringing to the fore today were the ones that he heralded yeah. back back yeah. in the day. And one of the things I, ne- I need for us to really understand when we talk about the romanticizing of King and Coretta, they were here in the 50s. He left before Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. None of us was born at that time. And so Boston, you know, comes late to the game, but it finally elevates it in terms of of the only time we know of a concentrated effort of activism is the abolitionist movement. So this is a moment to say that that there was some activism happening and it even and it started, you know, way before King did. But he helps elevate that history. By the way, one of us may have been around when Brown versus Board of Education. I'm not sure who, but, you know, Emmett, you know, Emmett, uh, no, nothing to be sorry about. I mean, it is what it is, as they say, you know, a, a couple of things I think also very significant out of this one. I'm betting a huge swath of Boston didn't know they had met here until Friday. Uh, a huge swath of Boston didn't know that it was the first major civil rights demonstration of its kind in the Northeast uh, uh, when he marched uh, to the common. And, you know, Correct. thirdly, there are a lot of pieces, including this one by Esau McCauley in The New York Times, that I think provide a real important service today to, to make clear that Martin Luther King uh, uh, Jr. was a radical. He was not, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, the sanitized version so that, as Renee Graham says in her piece, so that all the right-wingers can adopt him for their own causes and then do things that are antithetical to what he believed in. But it, it, spend a minute on that, that who he really was and, and as compared to how he is portrayed, you know, decades and decades later, Emmett. Yeah, you know, thank you for that, because one of the things about Dr. King is people quote his early speeches um, when he was really just getting off. He was really trying to bridge uh, the racial divide, the ethnic divide. Uh, But later in his life, he was rather radical. I mean, you know, particularly before he was assassinated, he was on the FBI's America's Most Wanted list. I mean, he was saying some stuff and really calling out the connection between white supremacy and and economics, Um, really focused on on economic disparities, but poverty. And and in many ways, the language that he used uh, towards the end of his life would have been in alignment with what we call being woke now. Uh, and right. it certainly would have been in alignment to what we uh, declare as uh, critical race theory, not just the 
the real critical race theory a la Kimberly Crenshaw and legal yeah. studies, but also the extension of what folks are kind of putting into this hodgepodge of trying to understand the, the historical um, um, issues that have come because of discrimination, prejudice, right. um, privilege, and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, so he would have been in the, the media today. I mean, he would right. have been talked about today. But he was on the FBI list. Now, let's remember this. As much as, as much as folks like to make him seem like an accommodationist, you know, Black man, he was on the FBI list as Malcolm was. And so what happens is after a while, as, as you know, King becomes more radical in his public discourse because his theology, as well as his day-to-day civil rights praxis was very radical. Um, and white people didn't understand that because of the, the way in which we, quote, wear the mask and the way in which we code language issues here. But after a while, they were no longer pitting Malcolm against Ma- uh, King because, because they realized they both are going for, towards the same aim and they both are dangerous. You know, before, can I just play sound, by the way? Sure. This is this really relates specifically, well, what you're both saying, but particularly what uh, what Emmett was saying about speeches later in his life. Uh, Reverend King delivered his last Sunday sermon at the Washington National Cathedral in D.C. and was called Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. Here's an excerpt criticizing the, I guess you called the up by the bootstraps mythology of America. If the Negro is to rise out of slum conditions. If he is to rise out of discrimination and segregation, he must do it all by himself. And so they say the Negro must lift himself by his own bootstraps. The people who say this never stop to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. But beyond this, they never stop to realize the debt that they owe people who were kept in slavery 244 years. You know, um, it seems to me, and you guys are both reverends, and you're both black reverends, and you know this much better than I, but it seems to me there's a political uh, thing that goes on here with the sanitizing of King. It's like the uh, white evangelicals sanitize um, King's inspiration, who was the life of Christ, and um, instead of portraying him as the radical that he was, or King as the radical he was, we've turned him into someone different. Emmett, Unrecognizable. I mean, yeah. Unrecognizable. And it's very convenient if you are, um, <laughs> if you're, if you're a politician of a certain persuasion to do that. Thing. Well, it's very convenient if you realize that America has not been watching so if there ever was a form of propaganda that happens on a day-to-day basis, this is it. To take somebody who, who, who actually lived the exact, exact opposite of what you're espousing that he's saying to benefit your platform position or even your sentiment is outrageous. And hopefully in this day and age, and perhaps today mm-hmm. on MLK Day 2023, we will no longer stand for that, to listen to folks uh, misquote, uh, misarticulate, uh, and even misposture Dr. Just, King yeah. 
in order to benefit their own uh, situations and to suggest that they're not racist. Because right. if you can quote King, then quote unquote, you're not racist. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. And, and, and the thing is, it's very exactly interesting right. in terms of whitewashing him. At this point, they're no longer even doing that because the popular quote is, I, you know, I hope one day that my, this has come from the um, I Have a Dream speech in 1963 on, in August. And where he says, you know, I, one day I hope that my children, you know, will be judged by the content of their, you know, character and not of their color. And the interesting thing about it is that now what they do is in these in, in many of these Republican strongholds, they remove the primary text, meaning that now the speech along with his books are banned from um, libraries as well as the school curriculum. That's unbelievable. <laughs> well, Renee Graham once again touches on this really well in the Globe, saying that you know there are certain people who really we don't need to hear from on Martin Luther King <laughs> Day. <laughs> you know, she mentions uh, Senator Ted Cruz. You know, right, right, who right, seems not right. to be really with the program, or Representative Andrew Clyde of, of Georgia, who voted against certification of the election and and talks about King as a heroic leader of the Civil Rights Act. But you're right. It's like, what is Mr. Clyde doing down there in Georgia? I, I don't know that he's um, following in the footsteps or even trying. You know what I but mean? But still today, though, you know, I, I think what bothers me, though, still today, I think in Alabama and Mississippi, if I am correct here, uh, they still celebrate King in conjunction. Oh, with, yeah. Um, You're right. King. I didn't know and, this. And, till... and, yeah, go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say, and, and I think that <laughs> what, what bothers that, I mean, the juxtaposition of that, um, that if we if we're going to laud him, we go. This is how we're going to do it, and and it just really bothers me on many levels. And I don't even live in the state, but I think it, I, I, and I forget what day they call it down in, in King in, Lee in, Day. Oh, they call it King Lee Day. Yeah. yeah. Well, so it's it's the it's the it's the deliberate. It's the it's it's sort of the you know the the myth, the you know what we call the myth that continues to to keep keep going that what it does here is that it doesn't allow us meaning any black people people of color to singularly have a hero that is fought against white supremacy and 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 the juxtaposition of this is just i think it des it's desecrating the whole memory of trying to of what the civil rights movement was about and the you know, civil war too to be quite honest you know, I love her last line. Well, it's not her last yes. line, but it's in the last paragraph when she yes. says, <laughs> yes. they, these people should, this is Renee Graham, these these people should keep King's name out of their mouths and their tweets. <laughs> I, thought <that> was, <laughs> I thought that was that was great. And she talks about how Ronald Reagan, who didn't even want the, the mm -hmm. holiday, um, yeah. you know, uh, finally signed it into law. But that, the, as you guys say, the effort to, as Renee Graham put it, neuter King's dream. Yeah. Hey, can I, can is, I say this, one thing? Sure. Emma, go ahead. About the holiday, this is critical. Not only, and Irina mentioned this early, not only was it Miss Coretta Scott King who campaigned, yeah. but it was Stevie Wonder Thank who, you. who literally uh, could have ended his entire career. He went on hiatus. He was not touring. And at a certain point, folks didn't even want to hear from him because he had crossed the proverbial lines that we often, you know, kind of remark now, you know, for the athletes, we say, you know, shut up and dribble. Well, mm -hmm. you know, at that time, you know, during the 1980s, it was, you know, shut up and just sing, right? You know, and and he put it all on the line to create, a, a with Miss Coretta Scott King, a political campaign, which he highly funded. And his career, if you look at his discography, there's a huge gap there in that time when he was campaigning. 
and the wow. and the song the the way in which we sing happy birthday the uh um two king is a song that now has become iconic and 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 the interesting thing is at the time that he was campaigning it was quite interesting and i think we need to pull up some of the news coverage around that because there was a whole point of like do we do we meaning not black folks but a lot of say that do we continue to play his music mm -hmm. and if you and if you watch carefully or go back carefully a lot of his stuff was not played and he won no awards he won no awards hey, during that did time not, i you did know, not know that we we pre-taped this early this morning because both of you have busy days for obvious reasons if either, either of you want to share anything you're doing with the audience totally up to you irene oh yeah absolutely i had the pleasure um to preach yesterday at First Parish Church in Cambridge, and the title of my sermons was "Healing Our Isms." Okay, Marjorie, the intersectionality of <laughs> somebody. Oh, there. Irene, somebody <laughs> said that on Friday. Just about jumped out of my chair. I said, "Who said intersectionality?" <laughs> somebody said it. I thought, "There we go, Irene." We're channeling Irene. That was for you. And, okay, and as as I'm rushing and getting dressed at the same time um, that we we're taping this, I, I'm doing a uh, a service for Senior Citizen Center in Dorchester. So great. There you uh, any, have it. Anything for you, Emmett, or no? Yeah, I'm going to shovel in a little bit, and then I'm headed to do a, do a, do a couple of corporate events this evening. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. excited. Th by the way, I am really off, moved though. by the, f the fact that you guys, I didn't know this, hadn't seen each other in three years. That's right. And it was that moment and that day that you reunited. It's just, it really makes I, the day even better I almost me. cried, right, Emmett? You, I was like, oh I was about to lose I, I, thought, I thought you did. Yeah, and, and, and that's why that, when we talk about the embrace, because my, 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 my knees buckled. They really did. He held me. He, oh, he just literally held me because I was just so, Great. you know, taken over that by the fact that I'm actually touching him in the flesh. Happy birthday, Emmett, belatedly. Thanks. Happy Martin Luther King Day to both of you and uh, have a good day. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thank you to you both for being here. Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail. Emmett G. Price III is founding director of Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berklee College of Music as well. And, of course, they host the terrific All Revved Up podcast. Coming up, we mentioned in our live broadcast from the unveiling of the Embrace Sculpture on Friday that we'd bring you some highlights from some of our conversations, including with members of the King family. That is next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. As you know, we broadcast live from the unveiling of the Embrace on Friday. Before the official unveiling ceremony, we welcomed a number of incredible people to our remote studio on the Boston Common. We were just about maybe 50 feet or so away from the sculpture itself. Since today is actually Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're going to play some of those conversations for you now. It was a never-to-be-forgotten broadcast for Marjorie and me. If you missed it, 
Please check out our podcast. We spoke with Congresswoman Presley, the leaders behind the embrace, Amari Paris Jeffries, Reverend Jeff Brown, Reverend Liz Walker, Paul English, the artist and architect of the embrace, Hank Willis Thomas and Jonathan Evans, plus the NAACP's Tanisha Sullivan and Michael Curry, the Boston Foundation's Lee Pelton, as well, of course, our colleague Kelly Crossley and Paris Alston. In today's excerpts, you'll hear us speaking with members of the King family themselves, his son, Martin Luther King III, Andrea Waters King and King's incredible granddaughter, Yolanda Renee King, then former Governor Deval Patrick and his wife, Diane, and finally in conversation together, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, Governor Moore Healy, and Attorney General-elect Andrea Campbell. We're joined by three people with a direct line to the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. That'd be activist Martin Luther King III, his wife, Andrea Waters King, and their amazing daughter, Yolanda Renee King. To all three of you, we are really thrilled to have you with us. Thanks so much on this incredibly important day. Thank you. We're honored to yeah, be we're, here. Uh, we, uh, we are thrilled to talk to you. And I just want to ask you a question, having read so much this week or reread a lot about your parents. Did you know your mother came out to Huntington Avenue, <laughs> looked at your father and said, he's too short and he looks too much like a boy and I don't know if I want to get in the car with him? Did you know that? Well, something comparable to that. I, I'm, I'm certainly aware of that. But she also said that the longer they conversed, the taller he got. That's right. In terms of the depth of the message. You know, yeah. Martin Luther King III, uh, you, you know far better than we. There are tons of monuments, the incredible work your father did, but not nearly enough that include the important work your mother did in tandem. What's it mean to be 50 feet away from a, a statue that will be here forever that is a tribute to both of their incredible work? Well, I, it, it is a it is certainly a, a great honor, and the fact. Well, for me first, I must say that I'm so thankful and grateful because had it not been for this love story that <laughs> evolved here, I might not be here. So, your but, wife is smiling too, so I think she's pretty happy about it as well. <laughs> but it it when you think about the fact that the the two of them were conversing. And mom had been involved in the peace movement even before dad, dad mm-hmm. said. She, she actually led demonstrations, and they read a lot of the same books. So the magic really happened here. Now, the fact of the matter that this hopefully will inspire many, including generations yet unborn, because it's going to be here, is quite amazing. The uniqueness that it does not have their actual yeah. resemblances, the heads on is amazing. I, I don't think I am aware of uh, a monument like this. Uh, this. This may be the first. So uh, tell us, Mom, a little bit about your daughter, who we're going to hear from in just a second. But she has emerged as quite a powerful uh, voice in many aspects of her young life. She really has. Um, our daughter is an extraordinarily an extraordinary human being, both inside and out. She is a joy and a delight and she keeps us on our toes. I mean, we all are, are activists and, and involved in the quest for peace, justice, and equity. And she is, if she sees anything or, or she feels the need even to challenge us at home. Um, so it's, it's a lively home from time to time. It certainly isn't boring. And one of the things that I am most grateful for about this day and this occasion, as we were talking as a family before this, is that there is a, a uh, area in this sculpture where the hearts of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King connect, and you can walk up under that. And so I feel a, a unique 
just the fact that their granddaughter, who never met either one of them, could come to this memorial and come to this space and take a moment to literally be where their hearts unite. And I think of all children having that opportunity and coming to do that. Ardia, we want to get to your kid in a minute because she's the one we really wanted to talk to, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. But you run the Drum Major Institute, and I think people know what its mission is. Mm -hmm. it, we were talking to Mary Paris Jeffries and obviously the three co-founders. Their sense is this is just the beginning with the Embrace Center uh, in Roxbury to be built. Do you see that and its potential as an adjunct, as a continuation, an extension of what you're doing with the Drum Major Institute? I think it's incredibly important and actually one part of the project that actually um, it excites us the most. That certainly, you know, the symbolism is extraordinarily important, but the fact that there really is an investment within the community to really look at how here in Boston yeah. could be on the forefront of eliminating the triple evils of racism, poverty, and violence, and how we can truly live in peace, justice, and equity. So we'd like to bring you the sound of a 10-year-old, I repeat, a 10-year-old, speaking at uh, the March for Our Lives rally in 2018. That 10-year-old is Yolanda Renee King, Dr. King's granddaughter. Here she is. By the way, that 10-year-old happens to be 14-year-old now, and she's sitting a couple of, of feet away. What does it mean for you to be here today to the tribute to your grandmother and grandfather, Yolanda? Well, I never got to meet my grandparents. And this, I feel like this statue and this work of art, this monument, is it's going to be so beautiful because you can really see their love, their affection, and you can really feel it. And I almost, if you look at the shape, it's almost in like a circular way. So it's almost like the love is around you, like love 360. And that's really what we need in this world. And I really am so excited to see the unveiling because I can finally feel the love of my grandparents. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And not only will I be able to feel it, but everyone who visits and walks on the grounds of this monument will be able to fill it. And so I'm just really excited. And this is an important story and one that needs to be told. I just want to tell you, Yolanda, that I know you all have to go. It's a busy day for you. You talk about the love of your grandparents. While you were just speaking, I was witnessing the love of two people sitting to your left and right, looking at their daughter with stunning amount of pride. So there's love all around. Can I ask King one quick family, question you. before you guys go? So... Your dad was in the green Chevy, drove up to mine. <laughs> did, 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 what was his, uh, what was his uh, approach? His approach, we were introduced on a blind date. Another blind date, Another okay. Another blind date. Yeah. He missed the first one. Oh. I only agreed to the second one so that I could tell him off Whoa. and tell him that this is not how you treat a lady, no matter who you are. But it was a miscommunication, and as soon as he walked into the door, I instantly realized he was one of the best men I've ever met. Like father, like son, I will tell you. <laughs> we congratulate all three of you and your family and friends for this yeah. really important day and the really important work all three of you do. Yolanda, we hope you'll revisit us. I'm serious. Whenever you're around, we'd love to talk to you. Thank you all three for your Thank time. You. Today. Thank we you really very much for taking the time Thanks to join so us. Much. We really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Martin Luther King III, his wife, Andrea, Waters King and their daughter Yolanda Renee King and we thank all three of them for taking the time and congratulations thank on you. this wonderful event today.
Next up, our conversation on Friday with former Governor Deval Patrick at the BPR tent on the Common with his wife, Diane Patrick, former Massachusetts First Lady. So let, let's start with Governor Deval Patrick. You know, I read where you, I think at seven years old, so in your Chicago apartment, I think your grand, you were with your grandmother, saw uh, Martin Luther King speak on yes. a black and white TV. With, but no, actually the first time I ever heard him speak I, was live in a park on the south side of Chicago. In I was Chicago. about seven. And my mother uh, took my sister and me to hear him. And uh, I, I candidly, and I've said this many times, I can't remember a single thing he said, <laughs> but I remember what it felt like. I remember how connected all of us in that crowd felt, how solemn and serious and hopeful um, it, uh, uh, it felt. And then, of course, as I got older and I listened to him more and heard more about him, and, uh, and of course, I think like so many, never forget the day he was killed and how the whole world seemed to stop at that moment. Diane Patrick, do you remember a first King experience like uh, the governor does? I do remember growing up in New York. He was he was a, a saint in our house, and I also remember I was a, a high school senior the day he was he mm-hmm. was shot, and uh, it, it really felt like the earth moved and things changed forever. And of course, you know Robert Kennedy uh, soon followed. It was a besides it being my high school <laughs> year of my high school graduation. It was a, an amazing time and. And, and the impact he continues to have to this very day on every one of us is a testament to how, you know, what a king he was. Speaking of testament, there may be, we were researching it this morning, there may be one monument to Dr. King that includes uh, his partner in life, Coretta King. This one does to say front and center is an understatement. That's a pretty big deal, is it not? Yes, it is, because the, uh, the counterpart, the, the partner, Tends to be get lost um, mm-hmm. in the in the fame, I guess. Do you have that experience um, in, in with a governor? <laughs> in the, in the yes, yeah. she might know something yeah. about that. I, I, I know a little bit about that. I know yeah. a little bit about that, but you know that's the conversation for another day. <laughs> we didn't even know until a few years ago that they had met here. By the way, did you know yeah. early? How early on did you know in your? Was it? Gosh, I mean, a long time ago. A long time ago. And and so not only do we hear that she was the radical one in the couple in the early days of the uh, Scott and King. That surprises you. It It does. Well, why doesn't it surprise you? Well, first of all, he was, you know, what is it, the grandson, maybe even great-grandson of uh, black preachers. Mm -hmm. That is a pretty conservative Mm -hmm. environment, first of all, and, uh, and of a very prominent family with all the weight that goes with that. She was a uh, musician. I mean, they were both deep thinkers, and in some ways were the perfect, uh, perfect couple, the perfect match. But it doesn't surprise me that he was the more um, cautious. And if you read um, some of the accounts of the, of the early days of his advocacy, when he was brought in uh, to the uh, Montgomery movement, um, when he was uh, in his first... Uh, pulpit, I think that was in uh, uh, in Montgomery. He he came in reluctantly. Yeah. Um, but he was transformative when he did. Well, he didn't want to do it for for a while. I remember reading about that in several books. And yeah. then he had his famous kitchen table conversion, right. which was a very moving moment uh, when he decided he had the courage to, as he was facing death threats right. in the house with a newborn baby, right in the next room, right. and his wife there, and thinking, do I want to do this? And I get that yeah. completely. Yeah. You know, Governor Patrick, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But you uh, spent, you were kind enough to spend an hour every month 
not always happy in our studio, I should say, <laughs> as the governor. In retrospect. And, <laughs> but I have to say, when you talked about things with a passion, you had a passion about a lot of things that mattered, there was nothing that came close on the passion meter than issues of social and racial justice. I mean, you could feel it oozing out of your body. You were governor of a state whose capital city was viewed and I hope not anymore, we'll see, as the least welcoming city in America to African-Americans across the country, mm. has a very checkered, talk about euphemism, racial history. What does something like this do? Both the statue, and Mary Paris Jeffries was talking about the Embrace Center that's to follow. Mm -hmm. What does this do, can do, for a community, do you think? Well, it, it's interesting you asked me that. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to say today. But I, I was thinking how, uh, how lovely it is that a work of public art called Embrace is sitting now forever in a place that is known as not always opening its arms uh, to newcomers. Yeah. I also know from my experience that when we open our arms, that grasp and that embrace is firm and warm and, and lasting. And so I'm hoping that the experience of uh, over the generations of coming here and visiting and getting reacquainted with the message of this sculpture reminds us uh, of just how um, powerful a thing love is um, between individuals, but also uh, in a beloved community. I was from New York. He said, let's go to Boston. We had a baby. We wanted a little bit more of a... Uh, a normal life, and he said, let's go to Boston. And my view was not, no, really? not going anywhere near there. So and what convinced you? This guy. But what was the, what well, case did he make? Well, the case he made was that, you know, he had gone to high school here, college here, law school here, and he'd found a home. You know, we can create our own community, and that's what convinced me. And Was he right? He was right, absolutely right. But Governor Patrick, you had a bad incident in high school here at Milton Academy that I recall you sure. speaking about. What happened? When I first came here... In 1970, of course, the city was roiled by the desegregation work, school mm -hmm. desegregation work. And Milton is right on the edge of, uh, of Boston. And we used to have at Milton Academy, that when, the, when we could prevail on the, um, on the faculty when dinner was not very good, um, to, uh, to do a burger run. And the, and the junior students, the younger students, were assigned the business of collecting everybody's order and money and then phoning it in, and then we'd go and pick it up. When I was assigned on a particular evening, I went with a faculty member, and there were all these kids in the, uh, I think high school kids in the, um, in the parking lot. You know, I get out of the car, and, and it just, then it comes. You know, yeah. every name, every, you know, someone flicking. I had a big afro at the time. Someone trying to flick their cigarette butts into my, uh, into my hair. And then when I went in to get the food, they were pounding on the plate glass uh, windows. All kinds of things that made the manager and the other patrons at the at the McDonald's and and certainly uh, the faculty member I was with really really uncomfortable to say nothing of me. I, I will say that one of the strangest things about that time, that incident, was that the one th that I was finding myself comforting the adult on the yeah. way back to campus because I I don't Did think he even knew what to say or yeah. or uh, or how to help. But um, you know I don't know that there is a I don't know if there is a black or brown person in America who, who hasn't, hasn't had yeah. some encounter, like or worse, than uh, uh, than that. But it is also true that we are not the same country today 
that we were, you know, when my grandparents escaped from the Jim Crow South in Kentucky. And I think one of the hardest things we, we find in this country about race is acknowledging both the incredible progress we have made, much of it in my lifetime, our lifetime, and also uh, how much work remains to be done. Well, you know, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because you mentioned, Diane Patrick, about coming from New York to Boston with this bad reputation. And, you know, I've lived here most of my life. It's an earned reputation. But on the other hand, I remember when you were running for governor, and I was a reporter then, oh, my God, black guy's running for governor. He's going to be out of his mind. He's going to beat Tom <laughs> Riley, this white Irish guy, Catholic guy, and all this kind of stuff. And now you look at 2023, and we have... Ayanna Presley beating Michael Capuano for Congress. We have Mayor Wu, who's a woman of color. We have Andrea Campbell, an attorney general who came from the most humble beginnings you can imagine. So, and then we've got this. So I don't want to be overly optimistic here, but it does seem a little bit hopeful. Well, I will say it's incredibly hopeful. Uh, but, you know, the incidents that Duval described, sadly, continue. they continue. Yeah. So we can be hopeful and we should be hopeful, but they continue. That was our conversation with former Governor Deval Patrick and his wife, Diane Patrick, former First Lady of the Commonwealth. Up next, you're going to hear our conversation with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, Governor Maura Healey, and Attorney General-elect Andrea Campbell. Mayor Wu, it's great to see you. Great to see you. Well, thank you very much for being here, Mayor Wu. So what do you think? This is a great... But you guys should broadcast from here all That's the right. time. <laughs> you could just be right in front of this. We couldn't get approved. We couldn't get a permit. Do you know right. anybody? No, no, not at Doesn't all. Doesn't know anybody, okay. <laughs> I'm Thank serious. You. What is what, what is your reaction? I mean, I know you knew it was coming, and obviously you... Well, Amari has warned me that you could have seen every rendering, you could have seen every permit application, but when the tarp comes down and you can put your hand on that incredible structure, he says it's, it's just unlike anything you can imagine. And, and just even standing this close to it, this has already transformed the space, right? We are a city where... Our history is often tied to colonial times and 400 years ago and the Freedom Trail and this first public park in the country. But this park has since then hosted marches, dialogues, demonstrations for every major fight of each generation. And we're really proud that this is now very prominently visible. Do you know, by the way, when the sculptor was Hank Willis Thomas was here before, he told us something that not only did we not know, the three co-founders did not know, Reverend Brown, Reverend Walker, and Paul English, that if you stand on Tremont Street right by that piece of cement, do you know what's on the cement? No. The Declaration of Independence. I didn't know it either. And Hank said, None you stand there, you have the Declaration of Independence in wow. front of you, and just feet behind, you have this tribute to what Hank called a monument to love. That's pretty huge, isn't yes. it? And what is the significance, as you mentioned before, of it being here and not in a black neighborhood in Boston. I mean, it matters. This is kind of the big tourist spot that everybody comes to in Boston, right? Yeah. This is Again, this is the birthplace of so many of the foundational ideas and movements decade after decade. And for Boston to really step into our, our place as having played a very important role in the civil rights movement, the connection between these amazing individuals who are... Wow, look who's joined us. Oh, my God. You know, what the problem, you know what the problem with this community is, though, Mayor? And I'm going to be critical today. There just aren't women leaders. I mean, we talk a lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Look who's here. This the, is part, you're yes. not the attorney general yet. I didn't even learn that till yesterday. Yeah, on January 18th, a couple hours attorney left. general Neither elect one of us are. Andrea Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> Good line there, uh, Governor. Yeah. Governor Healy, who is the governor. 
and Mayor Wu. Boy, it's great to have you know, we call We call this the estrogen surge <laughs> in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the women uh, taking over. So, Andrea Campbell, I haven't seen you for a long time. Good to see Congratulations you guys. on your win. Me too. I, I wanted to ask you because I thought, I've read a lot about Coretta Scott came this week about. Um, her having rather humble beginnings, coming to Boston with 15 bucks uh, in her pocket, having to get, not knowing where she's going to get food, um, having a very tough life. I mean, you lost your mom at eight months old. You had a difficult childhood. So relate to her in that regard. Yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. It's um, actually the person I've been thinking about the most is like Fannie Lou Hamer. Yes. Right, folks who did the work in partnership uh, with Martin Luther King, with Coretta, um, whose stories aren't often shared, who came from really difficult, challenging beginnings. But even as they were doing the work, some of those circumstances didn't change. Some yeah. of those folks who were at the forefront of the movement remained poor, impoverished, struggled in many ways, economically, obviously socially, but still got up every single day with a sense of purpose, conviction, empathy, love for this country to do what was necessary. And so this is, of course, honoring a couple, but it's more than that, right? It's honoring a whole group of folks, some of whom we know, some we don't. And it's just an honor and a privilege to be here. You know, Governor Healy, we talk to a lot of people here, including a woman who leads the city and a lot of other leaders in the city. You lead the state. What does this mean beyond, it's not just a Boston kind of thing. It's a far bigger kind of thing. What, what, what is that thing? Well, I think it represents so much for Massachusetts, for the Commonwealth. We know of the King's history, of course, in the city of Boston as a Commonwealth. We literally embrace that, uh, embrace that history, embrace their legacy. And I think that's why you see people who come not only from Boston and greater Boston, but all around this state today to join in this celebration and in the affirmation of what Dr. King and his and his legacy represents to us all. And certainly as somebody who is new to this office, I know I joined my, my sisters in government in representing that we will work hard day in and day out to make good on that legacy, to make good on that promise of equality and justice. You know, we've talked all day about the Kings. We know you have to go in a minute. The fact that they've also chosen, in addition to honoring the Kings, 65, I think, roughly, civil rights leaders in our community, Mayor Wu, some of whom are alive, some of whom are not, some of whom whose names we'll know when they're announced, some of whom we want. I think that's absolutely huge and incredibly important. We are still surrounded by living history in this city and in each one of our neighborhoods. I was in Roxbury just earlier this week for uh, the Roxbury YMCA's annual Martin Luther King breakfast as well. And we talked there about the march that took place with Dr. King and community members from Roxbury to this very park and how much that contributed, fueled not only the national movement, but continued efforts right here in Boston. It's great to see all three Thank of you. Thank you very much for taking the time. We've been talking with Attorney General-elect Andrea Campbell, Governor Moore Healy, and the Mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. And thank you very much for coming up. We'll be seeing you again soon, I hope. Up next, since it's Martin Luther King Day, a national day of service, we're going to talk about the fact that few of us are doing anything today service-wise. Actually, we don't do anything either on Memorial Day, Veterans Day, July 4th, and the mystery Suffolk County holidays, Bunker Hill Day, and Evacuation Day. Is this a problem? We'll ask you next, 877-301-8970. You can call us or text us at that number. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, again, we're at the library tomorrow. We hope you are, too. You might not know this, but Martin Luther King Day isn't just a day off from work. In 94, it was actually designated as a national day of service. It's the only federal holiday also designated by Congress as such. Government leaders were envisioning a day where people had the freedom to actually get out in the community, volunteer, make the world a better place. So for the next few minutes, Marjorie and I are considering solutions to our national laziness on MLK Day and other days like it. It's not the first time. It won't be the last time we do this. Is it time we mandated public service in this country? Maybe a whole year after high school, for example. Would we be better off as a nation if the government lit a fire under our collective you-know-whats to get out and do something? Or is that a step too far for some of you at 877-301-8970? So if you're at home lounging around listening to the show in your underwear right now, first of all, it's 1.30, so you should get up and get dressed. And second, would you appreciate some motivation to get out in your community of course, if you are volunteering today, how's it going? You're getting that warm feeling that I think most people get when they do do something for others. 877-301-8970. As you know, Marjorie, since we started talking on the air, I've been mm-hmm. a huge believer that in, in a divided nation, and we have never, well, maybe never, but we haven't been this divided in my lifetime, one of the ways to cure that and to fix some things that need fixing in our communities is let kids who are 17 or 18 years old Uh, on some small stipend be required to engage in not, if they want military, fine, but non-military service where they actually might get to meet and work with people not like them at a formative stage of their lives. Voluntary doesn't work. Things like City Year that my kid was in and one of our colleagues, Sandra, here ran a couple of years ago is a fabulous organization, but it's voluntary. Uh, we need mandatory service. And by the way, I was stunned. Did you see this New York Times poll from 2019? Yes. 73% of Americans, including 59% of Republicans, believe a (laughs) program of national and mandatory service would be a good thing for this country. Well, you know why that is. Why? Because they're already past the age where they have to do the mandatory (laughs) service. They want to get those kids off the couch and give up the video games, get out there and do some some work. But I do think, I mean, places have tried this. You know, California has a service program for college students and other places. No, no, that's that's And there's AmeriCorps. Voluntary, voluntary. Well, exactly. Let me finish. Okay. Um, That's the problem. I mean, it's it's going to be for a few groups of people. It should be for everybody. It shouldn't just be for, you know, uh, well-to-do college kids, and so many of people during college now are well-to-do because it's so expensive to go see how the other half lives. It's got to be for everybody. So kids from the city can go to a different part of the city or maybe even to the country or something like that. Uh, the city that your kid did was great. AmeriCorps gives you a stipend for a place to live. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So you can go live someplace else and do your work there and see a different part of the country. By the way, Marjorie was against mandatory service when I first brought it up a few years ago. Well, you know what? I've what? grown and changed, Jim. You have? I, I, I have. Well, because things weren't as dire that's a good as point. they are now. We weren't at each other's throats the way we are now. And I mean, it would be good, I think, to spend a little time living in the same apartment. You know, you could be a MAGA person from Alabama mixed up with some, you know, radical lefty from Cambridge and maybe over, you know, your your beer drinking, your pot smoking or something, mm-hmm. you could find some uh, some common ground. You know Not what I mean? to mention the fact there are a lot of things needed addressing in this country that well, aren't getting addressed. It. Think and about it. 
you'd have you'd have from from doing community gardens to doing painting and repairs at, at projects that need need great. that kind of help to doing tutoring to mentoring to kids. It's it's a great idea, and other countries do it. Israel is the one that spring, springs to mind. They have to you have to go in the military. They were not talking mm. about going into the military, although that would be wonderful too. Um, but but just doing needed work. On the cheap. Okay, before we get to calls and texts, I realize we've got to make correction. Marjorie and I both confused some things. Oh, we did, yeah. An hour I'm or so sorry. ago. We were talking about an action by uh, Governor Healy. She fired the, we got the names right, but we mixed up the actions. Uh, she recently, a couple of days ago, fired the head of the Chelsea Soldiers Home. Right. It was the Holyoke Soldiers Home, though, where 86 veterans died as a result of the uh, mismanagement there. And by the way, as Attorney General, she criminally charged the two leaders. The cases were dismissed, and I think they're on appeal. In any case, our apologies for that. Tony from Holton, you are first on Boston Public Radio. How's it going, guys? Excellent. So uh, I think that um, service should be absolutely mandatory. If you get a bunch of kids together, you know, you're 17, 18, like you were talking about, and you get them involved in, let's just say, like, painting a, a exactly. bathroom in a park, then yeah. those kids are going to go past that and when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and say, "That's I painted that bathroom. And if they see something on it, they see graffiti, if they see hate speech, they're going to try to do something to make sure that it's not there. You know, Tony, may I ask you a question? Um, are you a military veteran or a, just a veteran of doing volunteer stuff like that? I'm a uh, I'm an Iraq veteran, uh, and I served uh, um, 01 to 05 in the United States Marine Corps. So, so how has that service changed your attitude about service in general? Oh well, uh, they say that uh, Marines have an unhealthy relationship with uh, purpose and service uh, because you're bathed in it to such <laughs> that you end up craving it. Yeah. And uh, I still haven't found uh, uh, the the, uh, the treatment for that, <laughs> but um, I, I think that uh, it would do our country a lot of good if everyone just spent a little bit of time and took a little bit of pride in this country. There couldn't be a better first call yeah, for this segment you. than you, Tony. Thank Tony. you for making that call. That was said so perfectly. And it's not just getting to meet other people who may not be like you. As Tony said, it's a lifelong thing. You become like, becomes part of who you are at an age when you're still thinking about the state of the world. I, yeah. I, I love that call. Meredith from Braintree, thank you for calling. Hey, Meredith. Hi, good good afternoon. Thanks so much for having for having this uh, show on today. Thanks. I wanted to relay. Um, I'm the president of the Braintree Town Council, oh, and this great. morning um, we hosted our first morning of service. So, along with Mayor Kokoros and our state senator Walter Timothy, who was they were both also there. Uh, myself and a whole bunch of volunteers, we made 150 bagged lunches for Father Bill's and Main Spring. Oh, for oh, Father Bill's. And- We've had them on. They are unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. And we just had an – when I conceived of this idea, you know, it was with the help of some of my friends and residents, and we had an overwhelming response. We had people dropping off so many – so much food, bread, cheese, deli meat. Yesterday at town hall, 
And this morning we had kids decorating lunch bags and people writing handwritten notes to put in the lunch bags. The mayor and the senator were making ham and cheese sandwiches. And it was just it was it was so uplifting. And it, there's really a desire to help out there. Yeah, but Mert, don't go away. I, what you did is great. And I'm, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the conversation we have with Lindia Downey, who runs the Pine Street Inn uh, right after right around Thanksgiving every year. And there's the story, she doesn't love it when we tell this, but it is what it is, <laughs> is that like 16 trillion people call and say they want to volunteer on Thanksgiving. And she says, we'd love to have you, but all the spot, volunteer spots are full. How about, you know, January or March? Oh, no, no, I'm not interested, just Thanksgiving. Do you think that people get the bug from something like today and decide to do it again and again when there isn't something organized like you and your colleagues did? I I hope so. And I also think, you know, it does take leadership at the local level to yep. to have a platform to help make those spaces for people to volunteer. Yeah, um, I agree and, that. You know, a huge thanks, right, to the facility staff at our town hall Good who for couldn't you. have done this without. And um, I think that I, I do think there is a desire out there, and if you can have a couple people who can spearhead these events no matter the time of year, it, it will bring people together, it builds community, and it helps our most vulnerable residents. Meredith, we're really glad you called. Good for you, good for Braintree. Marjorie and I were just in Braintree the other day, actually, visiting a friend. So right. that's right. We have a well, deep connection to your community. Town. What's that? <laughs> Let us know the next time you're in you're, town. Trust me, you're on our Rolodex or whatever those are called these days. <laughs> Myrna, thanks for the call and thanks for what you did. That's great. By the way, that is a great thing. I happen to believe that when you give, when people like Meredith and her colleagues do something like that, people who otherwise might not volunteer sort of get a feel. It always feels good. You always feel good about yourself, by the way, not just the people you oh, help. Oh, well, of course. Well, I mean, that's but why that's, you do it. But that's, part of the, so that's what? Part of the reason. That's, well, that's exactly. a huge thing. And if that motivates you to do it again in a less organized way than Meredith put together, then I think that's really, really great. But what we're talking about, by the way, which is the notion that this country or maybe our state or maybe neighboring states or the city – I guess it's got to be on a larger scale. Implement mandatory. So it's sort of like a draft, by the way, it used to exist for the military, but a draft of sorts for young people to do mandatory civ- civilian service if they prefer yeah. that to the military. And it would have to be no deferments. You know what I mean? I'm with you. Be, yeah, you gotta, it's got to be everybody right across the board. Alyssa from Rosendale, thank you for calling. Hi. Hey, um, great to talk to you guys. You too. Um, Thanks for I- calling. Yeah, of course. I uh, just wanted to mention that I love the idea of mandatory service, but um, I do think that having something in the post-high school, pre-college era is not something that a lot of people would be willing to support. And I think that it's maybe too late and that the best time to institute service is in public school, like pre-college. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that if you were to establish that as a as a something that you learn from like a really young age rather than like in your post-teenage years, that it might actually have a, a wider effect. You mean it's like part of the curriculum kind of thing? Exactly. Like like I grew up in, in my public school, like I think we had like a couple service days and it just becomes like more like ingrained in you, you know, as you grow up. I agree. I think it's yeah, great. Yeah, I think that's then. a great idea. But one of my pie-in-the-sky ideas is that it's a cross-pollination 
that you go to a different place. That's why I like AmeriCorps, because you are you are 18 years old, and you go live someplace different in, in a different yeah, community. Yeah, but you start with the Lissa's deal, and then well, you, you build. Well, you could start with the Lissa's deal, but, but so, uh, you know, black kids with white kids, rich kids with poor kids, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's really yeah. eye-opening to see the okay. way other people live, and I think that would break down some of this animosity we have toward each other. Because you know we don't I mean, know Jim? each other. Exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Like, for example, Jim, oh, here we in, go. That, in that Alyssa, Tesla. thanks for the call. In that Tesla of yours, that beautiful car, <laughs> yeah. if you had to drive from here to Georgia, like yeah. one of the reporters in the Globe did, the lawyer did yeah. with, 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 a, with a MAGA guy, yeah. you know, you might come to some sort of meetings of the mind. You don't want to get to... Well, uh, I would, by the way, can like, I tell you something? If I drove to Georgia with a MAGA guy and you agreed in advance that you would put up my bail, uh, <laughs> uh, then... <laughs> If you agreed in advance in writing that you would post my bail, then I would do it, and I'd do it tomorrow if you want me okay. to. Okay. Okay, and oftentimes you go in these programs uh, like AmeriCorps. Well, I, well, actually, I should shut up because I'm not sure if it's still true. Dana Can I tell you, Newton. by the way, if my younger daughter was on the phone here, I, mm-hmm. she loves when I speak for her, by the way, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Uh, uh, I think she'd say it was, one, it was the most life-changing, her year in city year. When she was in high school, by the way, it's almost all college kids. She yep. was a high school city year, post high school city year kid. Uh, uh, most life changing thing that's ever happened to her, and how she views the world and other people is yeah. a great part of no, function I, of that year working at the Dever at the uh, school in uh, yeah. Dorchester. Well, I think my oldest daughter would say the year living in the tough part of your town in Philadelphia was. Oh right, of, I she, forgot she, she of course, right. AmeriCorps. That's I why remember. I know something that's right, about yeah. it. Dana from Newton, thank you for calling. Hi, Dana. Hi there, Jim and Marjorie. I'm glad you've just referenced City Corps, uh, City Year and AmeriCorps because I, I love the idea of this year of service. I think this is fabulous. Great. I think the problem is those organizations pay these folks. And how are you going to feed them? And how are we going to find them places to live? I think the practical reality of getting stuff done makes it almost insurmountable, which is, is a shame. But Every time we have these these big dreams of how to fix things, it always comes back to who who's going to pay. Yeah, well, can I tell you something, uh, Dana? Is I don't believe in sub minimum wage, so I'm not arguing that. But the amount that you'd pay high school kids some sort of stipend to pay for housing, as Marjorie said, and some sort of living you know, wage kind of thing, is far less than it would cost for a traditional fix for whatever ails the community. So I think it might end up saving governments money. Uh, at the same time, the problems that their constituents want addressed get addressed. So I actually think it is affordable. It's not an easy nut to crack, but I think it is affordable, and uh, the benefits would outweigh the cost, I hope. I mean, probably your your attitude is right, but I hope it's not. Dana, thanks so much for the uh, for the call. Would you have been okay? I know it's a long time back for us to think. If, first of all, I'm a huge believer in gap years, even if you don't do this kind of thing, and I wish I had done it myself. Both my kids did. Would you Would you uh, have been happy if you were drafted into public service out of Durfee High School there in Fall River? You had to wait a year before you went to Smith? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, back then I didn't even, I didn't even think about it. Um, but I do know that when I went to my freshman year in college and I did this, like, big sister thing for a kid in Springfield, um, and that was just one kid in one experience. It was, it was, like you said about your daughter, it changes your your life. Well, it's like me see... being doing legal services in the South Bronx. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever been to the South Bronx right. before I worked there, and it exactly. does. It's life changing. So, and, and I think that you know the woman that called and talked about her school in Rosedale. I think yeah. that's fantastic. But you, 
you're not going to a different place. In anyway, any case, thanks, everybody. Yeah, we are almost out of time here. Um, I wanted to thank everybody uh, for tuning in today. We're going to be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. We're going to hear from NBC's Sports Boston's Trenny Casey, legendary environmentalist Bill Kibben. I love talking to him, former Massachusetts Secretary of Education, Paul Revel, and our national security expert, Juliet Kayyem, and CNN's John King. And by the way, you don't need any tickets to the Boston Public Library or reserve your seats. You can just show up, stay for as little as long as you want, and you can get a cup of coffee or even a full lunch at the Newsfeed Cafe. I want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, additional support provided by Brendan Deedy. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker with Brian Bell on the boards for us today. Our executive producer is Jenny Bologna. I wanted to go out um, with a little more um, sound. This one is from Coretta Scott King. This is an interview she gave to Eyes on the Prize in 1985, recalling uh, the early years in Montgomery, Alabama for her and her husband, Martin Luther King. Uh, Dr. King was a new pastor but was selected to be the spokesperson of the bus boycott movement following the arrest of Rosa Parks. Here is Coretta Scott King. Martin's idealism, of course, uh, I think became uh, a combination of uh, idealism and uh, practical reality, I guess, bringing the reality and idealism closer together as he moved over that first year and into what was to come to be the destiny of his life.